there's whole dormant periods of X-Men for Jean, you know, where you're just kind of like, well, no Jean. <laughs> or like, Jean wasn't too great in this one or whatever. Like, Jean was poorly written, whatever, whatever. Listen, I embrace Emma horse murder and all. Like, you have to just, yeah, totally. you know, be on board or not be on you board. You settle in. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is horror writer and comic critic Sarah Century. You may know Sarah's work from the Sci-Fi Wire and many other outlets, and she is also the co-host of the Bitches on Comics podcast. She is here with me today to talk about a character dear to her heart and a character I, as you may know, as a listener of this podcast, have a very fraught, complicated, but ultimately loving relationship with Jean Elaine Gray, aka Marvel Girl, and sometimes the Phoenix. Sarah, how are you today? Oh, I am doing great. I am so excited for this conversation. Every time Jean Grey is brought up to me, I'm just like, all right, well, here we go. I'm going to be here for the next three and a half hours just talking. Yeah, I think that the joy of this podcast has been finding people who really love characters that I either have mixed feelings on or have never thought an enormous amount about. Like the second episode was about Nightcrawler and I like Nightcrawler. I was a big Excalibur fan as a kid, but like I've never, you know, really thought deeply and powerfully on Nightcrawler before, but Daniel Kibblesmith loves him so much that it just became <laughs> sort of this fruitful conversation, no matter how many times I wanted to pivot it to a conversation about Amanda Sefton, because I know who I am. I love to talk about Amanda Sefton. So do I. <laughs> we are here to talk about Jean Grey. Before we jump in there, two brief notes about last week's episode on Opal Luna Saturnine with Teeny Howard. First, I made a passing reference to Teeny being the first writer with Romany heritage to write Megan. I actually have forgotten that Seanan McGuire wrote Megan in Age of X-Men in the Nightcrawler story, which is a cute story if you liked their relationship in Excalibur, although it's kind of sad because it's not real and it's an alternate universe, which is why it slipped my mind. My larger point, which I think still holds, is that Seanan and Teeny are, as far as I know, the only Romani writers who have been hired to write for Marvel. And Marvel has a number of Romani characters, some of whom have not always been handled with the utmost sensitivity. So I think it's exciting that they are both getting that opportunity. I would love to see more talent from that ethnic group brought in to the fold because we have the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver and Doctor Doom and Megan and Amanda Sefton and Margali Sardish and all of these other characters who sometimes have stereotypical elements, sometimes don't. I, I just think much like with any other minority group, it's important. And in America, I think we have a tendency to see Romani people as almost like fantasy archetypes as opposed to a real ethnic group because there isn't a very big Romani population in America particularly compared to Europe and it's just not something that is really ever in our pop culture except for tropey stuff most of the time which is unfortunate. Yes. The second point was in the Cerebro character file I forgot two of the alternate versions of Saturnine. One which I did mention before it but then forgot to put in is Queen Saturnine from the world of <laughs> Ethera in Alan Davis's Clandestine, Volume 2. Clandestine 
possibly clandestine, I mean, clandestine's the pun, but I think it's clandestine, is an insane series that Alan Davis wrote that you should read if you like Excalibur, because it's similarly deranged in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. And he threw a Saturnine in there because he can't help himself. <laughs> Similarly, in Chris Claremont's X-Men The End, Courtney Ross is somehow the prime minister of the European Union. <laughs> so that's just a fun tidbit there. I imagine that was supposed to tie in with his new Excalibur plot that was sort of confusing. But either way, those should be all the Saturnines fit to print. <laughs> with that out of the way, back to Gina Lane Gray, the original X-Woman one of the most famous and iconic X-Men characters. I've been a little nervous about this episode. Hmm. Sarah, I'd love to hear about your origin story with the X-Men and why you love Jean so much, to the point where one of the listeners suggested months ago, whenever you do Jean, get this person. And that's how we met. (laughs) Yeah, I think that I have that reputation because I have written so many articles about Jean at this Mm -hmm. point. I feel like there's like 12 or 15 (laughs) articles online. That's just me, you know, making my Jean points. Um, I love the X-Men. I remember watching the Pride of the X-Men special whenever I was like a little, little kid, like probably like eight, nine years old or something. And, uh, you know, as as a lot of people know, that w- was like this pilot for the animated series that never actually got made. But I kind of by chance saw it one morning and I was like, well, what happened to that cartoon? Like, I want to watch that. Like, I love Storm. I was like obsessed with Storm. Like I had not seen a character like that, you know, in cartoons at all. So it was like I loved Storm. And then I loved loved uh you know Kate Pride as well yeah. I thought that those were both like really interesting characters like just visually from the very beginning and so I remember whenever the animated series I was like oh the X-Men I've missed them you know like I now they finally have a show and I can kind of watch it sometimes I was uh born in Nashville but afterwards my parents moved me to like rural Missouri so we didn't really have cable like there was a bunch of things where it was like you get whatever entertainment you can get more or less and gas stations would sell x-men comics so you know if you go like 30 miles away like there's a gas station um and i got there was a comic book of x-men unlimited i believe issue number seven that has storm on the cover and it's Mm -hmm. like all of that rain coming down and she has like her fist in the air and i was just like ah like i need that like my dad was like you can get like some chips and a candy bar or something and i was like no 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 (laughs) like give me this right now that's the one with kandra right it is. And also, I mean, I think that there's a lot of things in that issue that really informed me going forward because Jean is a badass in that comic and her and Storm's relationship is so in the spotlight. And then, um, yeah, Gambit's an ass and I still uh, am very questionable <laughs> towards Gambit. Yeah, I'm very Gambit ambivalent. Gambivalent, one might say. <laughs> He uh like condescends to Jean and she's just like, yo, I was an X-Man before you ever even heard of us. So like, get out of here. And then Storm stands up for Jean too. So like, I remember, you know, at that time, comic books, you know, it was rough to be like gay or a girl or like, you know, anything like reading both. Yeah, comics. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Any of these things really like there was just like a lot of problems. Um, And, you know, they haven't totally gone away. But like at the same time, you know, it made 
made it kind of difficult to go pick up a comic um, (laughs) because it's like, you know, like the boobs and the butt poses like all over the place. Yeah, Betsy was doing a lot of that at the time. (laughs) Yeah. I believe they called it the Psylocke pose for a long time. Yeah, the broke back pose too, which is just like, I gosh. Yeah, now now that has a different connotation. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> there's just so many layers. Now Scott and Logan do the broke. Yeah, I got a lot cuter, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically, like, that was my introduction. And I don't know, like, Storm and Jean are both my favorite X-Men. They always mm-hmm. have been. So it just hasn't really changed over time. I've said this on the show before many times, but I do think that where you enter matters so much in terms of who your favorites are. Like, my father who was a collector, gave me all of the old stuff when I was a little kid. Oh, yeah. What really captured me, I loved the giant size run immediately after giant size. I loved Storm. I was obsessed with Storm. Yep. And I loved Jean in that stuff as Phoenix, specifically. Mm -hmm. And then the other stuff I was reading, because it was all coming out in trades when I was a kid, was the Claremont and Simonson 80s stuff. Mutant Massacre, Fall of the Mutants, Inferno, all of that. And that's where my obsession with Justice for Madeline Pryor comes from. Oh, yeah. And in that period, Jean is um, prickly, difficult. I don't know. There's a couple ways we could phrase it. And not in the way I love difficult characters, especially when women are allowed to be difficult characters. Sure. And it's not that Jean is a bad character in that period at all. It's just that the Jean versus Madeline of it all, I was very much on Madeline's side. Of course. And I don't think it's an accident that you were like whenever you read that story. Well, Claremont was pissed and you can tell. Yeah. And like, I mean, everybody, I I don't think that they were like, whoops, we accidentally made Madeline Pryor the most relatable character. No, I mean, Claremont wanted her to be the audience viewpoint character. Yeah. Once he had to salvage her because Scott left, he was like, well, then she's Lois Lane or Sue Dibney or whoever. She's the girl Friday. She's going to be the one who's at the base while they're all having adventures and mm-hmm. the readers identify with her. And then very quickly, it was not to be. That's true. And you're right, because Jean falls into some of those old woman hating traps yeah. that are kind of like, but also in my defense, I would say like that she is a character that it makes sense that she's doing that because she's been surrounded by like almost primarily men in like yes. her entire no, it life. It makes total sense for Jean to be like one of the guys. I feel like her right. only relationship that really is outside of that context is her relationship with Storm. Yeah, 100%, right? And I guess her friendship with Misty Knight, but we haven't really seen that since the 70s. Not much. They were roommates. I know. <laughs> <laughs> explore it the they were roommates meme i always think about gene and misty knight because it is so random (laughs) it was just claremont loved misty knight and just like threw her into x-men the same way he did with any character he loved who wasn't getting focused Mm. colleen wing also gets thrown in there carol danvers gets thrown into x-men because his book got canceled like he that was his deal he loved that yeah psylocke is is a great example of that i mean you know Oh, yeah. Like, well, if you're not going to use her, I'm going to fix her and make her an X-Man. And then it went a little awry. But, you know, it's all better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it went a little awry is probably (laughs) the best way to put that. The Betsy Braddock story. (laughs) It just went a little awry. Um, Yeah, I think that Jean is a difficult character during that time. But I also want to illustrate something that I really like about Jean as far as what her complexity is. And that's that Jean's kind of a bully. Like you look through this entire arc and she is a bully. Like she 
opens up her, like whenever they first she when she first first shows up at the x-men mansion um there's like beast tries to flirt with her and she like knocks him across the room and then like we just see that's how Jean has conversations. Like she enters the room, like pushing you around with her telekinesis. Mm-hmm. Like she, it's like whenever people are just like, I don't really see like what Jean and Wolverine have in common. I'm just like, they're both jerks. Like they yeah. both come in and like push other people around and like intimidate people. And I, think that that is something that a lot of writers have either tried to ignore or they've tried to like just kind of you know brush it aside and move past it or something and I'm just like no Jean as a bully has to be a characteristic like that is one of the things that's so important to her as a character is is that she's trying she's struggling against that like she has been raised in a situation where she was always the most powerful person in the room like even whenever she was around Xavier or something you know I guess it's like arguable that he's more powerful but I don't think so once Grotesque killed him before they retcon it and her telepathy unlocked, she becomes pretty quickly, and anything you can do, I can do better with Xavier. Yes. And then once she's the Phoenix, it's, you know, it's done. It's done. She became the most powerful character at Marvel Comics, period. Yes, exactly, exactly. Which was revolutionary when Claremont did it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, and it, there's just something about it because, like, that's the thing. Like, Phoenix is so much a reflection of Jean. Like, people are like, oh, well, she's yeah. not in control of herself or she was, like, crazy. replaced by that character. And it's just like, no, when you're reading that original, like, the original comics of, like, Jean's progression through that cycle is, like, in, you know, Uncanny X-Men, I think, number 99, it has her being taken by Scott Mm -hmm. Lang, and, like, she's calling him, like, a Nazi and stuff, and, like, whenever Wolverine's, (laughs) like, we gotta get out of here, and she's, like, we're not going anywhere, because I'm gonna save, like, this person's life, and, like, just is, like calls him a coward to his face and like you know just is like literally just like doesn't give a damn you know and is just like i'm the person who's taking control of this situation because you're all acting like babies and i think that like when when she feels like she has to do that we see a very aggressive gene you know mm-hmm. um and i think that like when she comes back from the dead her relationship with madeline is so like has to be so weird (laughs) yeah there's it's so unsettling and strange and she's seeing scott she's seeing things from his perspective because he's like broken right yeah and also sinister has eradicated all evidence of madeline's existence like there's a whole lot of intrigue there that isn't in gene's fault i just have a lot of trouble with that scene in x factor 29 like when scott is watching madeline's message on television after she has sacrificed her life to save the world where she's unbelievably kind to the man who abandoned her and their child yeah and she's like she makes me sick she's a disgusting hypocrite it's like first of all she's dead like shut up I mean, yeah she's not actually but they think she is but also what is wrong with you also she's talking to herself right like that's kind of like well right and that is the thing that makes it complicated but what i the thing that made me really hate Jean for a long time is at the end of inferno when she finds out that Madeline is a clone and then her whole demeanor sort of changes and it's like all pity and very condescending empathy. Yeah. And as soon as Madeline's dead, all she can talk about is how Madeline was a trap made with your love of me. You know, Madeline was a living lie. Yeah. Sinister built her life on lies. She's a part of me now. And it's like, shut up. Like it, it once <laughs> it becomes about Jean, then Madeline is this, 
innocent victim, you know? But before that, she was the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so when I say I hated Jean, it's like I was also captivated by her, though. Like She's a fascinating oh, yeah. character. And I've always thought she was a good character, even in that Simonson period that I find tricky. And I will say, it's the first time she was written long-term by a woman. Yes. Teeny Howard just talked on last week's episode about how one of the things she's most enjoying about writing Betsy Braddock, even though it has gotten some complaints from super fans of the character, is that she is a super fan of the character and she's also a woman who really wants to tell stories about women failing and women being imperfect. Yes. And there's a real important thing there. I think that it's unfortunate that it coincides with the editorial directive to dehumanize and kill off Madeline. It all sort of clicks together in a way that doesn't reflect well on Jean's character. Oh, no. But I like her best when she's a bully. I mean, I love that sequence you were talking about, where, like right before she becomes the Phoenix, when Scott Lang kidnaps her. I was posting panels from that on Twitter the other day, and I pointed out, and this is something that apparently a lot of people have never noticed, but the black evening gown that she wears with the gold necklace mm-hmm. that she then immediately, when she's like, all right, time to get to work, and she tears the skirt off, and everyone's like, oh, uh, she gets Jean means business. It is very similar in aesthetic and design to the black evening gown that Madeline wears at the beginning of Inferno with the gold brooch that tears into the Goblin Queen regalia. Right. And I don't know if that was intentional on Silvestri's part, but if it was, it's absolutely genius. It has a similar vibe where Maddie at that point, because it's before she finds out that she's a clone, has been corrupted. I mean, she's sold her soul by accident. And so that darkness is now sort of infesting her and she's becoming a darker and darker character but she's still sort of conscious of who she is and there's that storyline in Genosha with Jenny Ransom where she first sort of realizes that she does have powers right she does some scary stuff to people but it's not full goblin queen madness oh yeah and I think that it's very similar to and this I'm sure is an intentional parallel the way that Jean as Phoenix is written as a character who is constantly morally slipping, but who is fundamentally still herself. Right. Until the moment she's pushed completely over the edge by Mastermind and becomes Dark Phoenix. Right. The iconic Jean story to me, and this is just because I'm an Emma fan, apart from Dark Phoenix is New X-Men 139 through the end. When she is back in touch with the phoenix she's like i am the phoenix the phoenix is me and in 139 she tears through emma's mind and is terrifying she's so scary yeah phil jimenez draws her so beautifully in that arc but also when she goes phoenix she's really scary looking terrifying what i love about that storyline is that Jean has every right to be furious that this woman is having an affair with her husband. Mm. Like, there's, you know, that's completely justified. But the way she goes with it is, and now I am the avenging angel that will strike you down for your sin. And that, I think, is core to who she is. And when she is in touch with the Phoenix, it's amplified. But I think it's always who she is on some level. Because that's not the first time it happens. Like, that happened with Emma in the lead up to the Dark Phoenix saga. Like, there's that whole scene where, well, see, because that's it, right? Like, the thing that's so beautiful about Jean as a character is, like, there is that scene where, I forget exactly what issue it was, but it's at the beginning of the Dark Phoenix saga, where uh, Kate 
is in she's just been discovered like Jean goes into the hellfire club and finds Kate who has been a stowaway and has been terrified and all of this stuff and she just starts crying and Jean just stands there and holds her and she's just like it's gonna be okay like we're gonna get you out of here and it's just so present with her on Mm -hmm. an emotional level and so comforting and then she goes Emma and goes like right for Emma two pages later she obliterates Emma's mom obliterates her to the point where emma's comatose for like a year and a half yeah and this is what i think (laughs) is so interesting because emma is this person where Jean has decided you know who's Jean, so compassionate so moral and it's just like emma is the person where her compassion stops yeah and that is so interesting and that is something where i it's different now they have formed more of a friendship and i think that it's healthier um, that's good, you know, like, oh, I, I, like I think it. we, I like it we all now. love to see that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we all kind of wanted that to be what happened anyway. So that's fine. And like, it's better for Jean, honestly, like, on some level, it's better for the female characters not to be catfighting. You know what I mean? I may, I swear to God. Yeah. It's a very compelling arc the way Morrison wrote it. But once they yeah. kill off Jean, I feel like Later writers, whenever Jean would like pop back up for a cameo as the Phoenix, it felt a little, I don't know, or the way that the other characters would talk about Jean versus Emma or things like, it just all felt a little catty to me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like that now they can be catty with each other, but it's funny and they both get it and they're both in on the joke. And they're working together. They work in tandem with each other now, which is uh, honestly fascinating to see. Yeah, I loved that giant size. Yeah. I was just going to say that. It's such a callback to the new X-Men giant size, obviously, but the context is so different because they respect each other now. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. That's, I mean, yeah, if there's even a, if there's a more interesting, <laughs> um, you know, relationship in X-Men, I'm not sure which one it would be. Like, obviously, they're... There's so many amazing, interesting uh, friendships, relationships, you know, ad- adversarial things, you know, happening in X-Men. But I do find those two just to be so, so interesting. And whenever, like, young Jean was intro- kind of uh, interacting with Emma. Yeah, that, that stuff was, was fascinating. Incredible. And uh, I loved how whenever Emma in the Jean Grey series, Emma gets a role in that. And it's like Emma is not even remotely the villain. <laughs> like, no. There's this whole part where Emma's just like, do you see how you treat people? All Emma does whenever she talks to Jean, it's every single time she just says, do you see how you treat people? Like, do you see that this is like what you think is acceptable behavior is like you come in here and you try to push me around. Like she's calling Jean in this way that nobody else is capable of doing. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and Kitty has the same conversation with her when she keeps trying to alter Warren's mind. Yes. Where it's like, if you don't stop doing this, we're going to have a problem. Yeah. 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 Kate does it in this way that I think is very uh, straightforward. And she's able to reflect that scene earlier, right, where Jean was comforting young Kate, Mm -hmm. having that like dynamic kind of switch. That was very clever. Yeah, I thought that that was really clever. There's a lot of that. Like young Jean, I thought was a really interesting story. Well, that's the thing. I didn't care for the teen time travel story overall. No. And for a while, it was like, 
I don't know. It was the latest in sort of a long string of X-Men stories that I hadn't enjoyed. Sure. Conceptually. I didn't like the decimation. I didn't like Avengers versus X-Men and the Phoenix Five. Hated that. Oh yeah, Phoenix Five. Ugh. Hate it. I hate whenever the Phoenix isn't Jean or Rachel, frankly. Same. Yeah. It has to be Rachel. That's like the only character I want to see be Phoenix yeah, at this point. Yeah, exactly. And well, I well, we'll get into that. I, I loved what Morrison did with Jean and the Phoenix. And yeah. I don't like the way that Phoenix Resurrection recharacterized their relationship. I also didn't yeah. because that's it, right? Because we see that all of the time where it's just like you have the world basically like forcing Jean and the Phoenix apart. And I think that it's just so much better whenever it merges. And they're together but content to be together. And that's why Rachel was compelling when she Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that's why Rachel was so interesting always as a character was is that she was the person who made that work, right? Yeah. Like the Phoenix was intrinsic to her and she didn't fight it. Well, and it's why Rachel has somewhat floundered as a character ever since she yeah. came back without it. Yeah, I know. I think that they're using her well now, but I think it was a really crazy long haul before they figured out how to make her. I mean, I think it's smart that Leah Williams is emphasizing her post-cognition stuff, her chronos giving, yeah. because that is unique. And otherwise, what made her unique was that she was the phoenix, but wasn't corrupted by it at all. Yeah. And once you take that from her, I mean, it's why they can't find a code name for her either. I think they should call her Iskani, personally. I think it's time. Iskani is who she's supposed to be. Like, that's what drives me nuts about this stuff. If anyone at the X office is listening, I will not sue. It's just a thought. Just Please. do it. Just do it's it. It's like the thing just that's in your hands. Just do it. Like, just do it's it. been years. Like, come on. It's been on. so long. Just have her become Iskani. She doesn't have to be Mother Iskani. Just call her Iskani. I just want her to be surrounded by a group of women. <laughs> well, yeah, I also want Rachel surrounded by a group of women. That's my goal for her at all times. I know. I mean, come on. Um, yeah, and Ascani is how that happens. I didn't like the teen story, but I loved Teen Jean Grey. Yes, that was it. She was the one that actually got explored. Yeah, and also because I thought she was characterized so well. And a lot of people didn't like it because they thought she was kind of dreadful and I was like but that's G you know that's who she is (laughs) yeah like she's always been this person and I found that she was very sympathetic despite being kind of a controlling manipulative bitch why wouldn't you be like which is good we want that to be allowed yeah 100% and also what was so interesting about it it was like she actually got to explore her powers without people controlling her yeah without Xavier's paternalism looming over her the entire time and it changed everything and to me whenever I think about that arc it was a hundred percent what is the most important thing about that story and it's literally just Jean getting to explore her own power set she does that through the entire series and I'm not like I'm not a Bendis fan really you know I don't know I love Bendis I didn't love him on the X-Men I'll just say that Sure. It wasn't my taste. The problem is Emma is my window in a lot of the time. And I just didn't vibe with the way he wrote Emma at all. Fair. Yeah. A hundred percent fair. But I thought that his gene was superb. His teen gene. She was. 
She really was. Yeah, I loved all of that stuff. That whole arc was great, in my opinion, like as far as Jean goes. <laughs> and whenever they did Trial of the Phoenix and she's like, I didn't do that stuff. I, like, did not I do loved that. that. This is stupid and crazy. Right. <laughs> yeah, I loved that because and then, oh, my God, what about like the tearful thing with her and Scott where she's just like, I think about my older self and I just don't think she ever had a chance. And Cyclops goes, she never had a chance. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, <laughs> she didn't. I love when she has those hard edges. Yeah. Because here's what Morrison, I think, really underlines about Jean and Emma and Scott. But Jean and Emma are the dyad that's in starker relief is they're both what one might call bad people in the way that they approach other people, in the way that they approach relationships, in the way that they are a little egomaniacal and think they know what's right. Right. And that they know the right thing to do. The difference between them is that Emma knows that she's a bad person. And Jean thinks she's a really good person. <laughs> right. And a righteous person. And so what's interesting to me is Jean as a hypocrite. Is Jean as a bully? Because she can be that and also be that compassionate person who held Kitty as she crossed. Oh, yeah, 100%. She can also be Storm's best friend. She can also be the team mom, even when she is, at core, a pretty unpleasant person. And I find that really interesting. That's why, what did you think of X-Men Red by Tom Taylor? So I liked X-Men Red in a lot of ways and we'll have to get into all of the different <laughs> parts mm -hmm. of it i'll say what i did enjoy the thing that i loved the most about x-men red was that we got to see what gene would do right so we get to see that whenever you know what was it xavier is just trying to build this bridge between humans and mutants and he's kind of like you know we've explored that dynamic a lot and then we have cyclops who kind of became like this guy who was like on the edge and he was you know became a radical yeah yeah he becomes a radical which like yeah sure um and then gene goes i want to talk to everybody <laughs> outside of us doing what she could to reach out to other people mm -hmm. because she understood at that time which it's obviously just been completely like rewritten with krakoa but like well right she she understood at that time that the only way that mutants were going to survive is if, like, she had started to reach out to other people in the Marvel Universe. Um, and, of course, that, you know, there's all kinds of problems <laughs> that yeah. come from that. And, uh, you know, it's obviously very, like, neoliberal fantasy. Like, yes. she definitely is just, like, leading with her heart at all times, which is, like, not always practical and it's also very annoying to people who have been like long-term grassroots people you know it's like if you've been doing activism for years and years nothing is more annoying than the person who shows up and goes why didn't you just do it this way the whole time yeah i imagine the mutant liberation front is very annoyed by gene you know what <laughs> they're I mean? like, like yo yeah no mutant liberation front is like you have been doing this like you put us in jail and now you want to talk about peace like right. all right you ate a star system Shut up. What I, what I like about X-Men Red is I think that the character relationships are written well. They are, yeah. It is the only time outside of Morrison that I've ever enjoyed Cassandra Nova. Oh, yeah. So that's done well. Yeah. And she's the opposite of Jean in this pretty much, right? Like, Yeah. And I, I wish that... My thing is just I'm always going to be annoyed that Morrison's Ernst plot 
was not validated by later writers. <laughs> yeah. But the ending of X on Red sets up Cassandra for the same arc. Uh-huh. You know, I still would like someone to fix that because I think it should be Cassandra Nova in some way, however they want to do that. But Oh, yeah. And I thought Trinary was great as a new character. Yeah. So did I. Yeah, I really liked her. The problems I had with it were, first of all, the political stuff is a little heavy handed, but that's just always a risk with X-Men because the metaphor is, you know, limited at times. Yeah. But like you said, sort of neoliberal fantasy felt very specifically like this is an X-Men comic about Trumpism. You know what I mean? Which at the time, yeah, I mean, the X-Men comics have always resisted current things. I mean, the Genosha storyline was about apartheid while apartheid was happening like you know that's legacy not... virus like yeah oof <laughs> but... uh, yeah i'm gonna say just oof all around, oof all around. i mean genosha's not perfect either <laughs> yeah i mean that's just part and parcel of the deal sometimes my issue with it though it was really just a core issue that i found kind of unfortunately insurmountable was that i didn't like how gene was characterized in it I found her... She's too naive. Yeah, I found her to be so gentle. No pun intended, because she's working with gentle, the character. But it was all hugging Kate and no obliterating Emma's mind. Right. And you need both to me. And I just didn't buy it. I don't buy Jean Grey as a pacifist at all. That has never been her way. There were little things in it that I really loved. I love how she like alters Gentle's power without asking him. She like she goes into people's heads and does things, and that's very genius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also really like that throughout, even though she's rejected the Phoenix in Resurrection, which again I didn't care for, throughout Red, she refers to the things the Phoenix did as Dark Phoenix as things she did. Which is the first time that's ever really happened. And that yeah. It was great. Because that's character growth. And I think that it's important. Like, if you're going to come from the position of Jean not being a hypocrite, it's important for her to acknowledge the war crimes and genocide that she committed, you know? Even in a bad circumstance, or even while under the influence of another power. My issue is just that, yeah, it just didn't feel like Jean to me. It felt like a different character. It felt like someone who is the team mom who is soft, who is nonviolent. And that's just not G to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think that there was a lot of bite to that character. I understand why there wasn't, you know, I guess like, A, that's kind of like Tom Taylor's like writing style. And I think Tom Taylor is great. It just yeah. wasn't my, it just wasn't my cup of Gene specifically. Sure. I mean, yeah. And it was it was making a very specific moral point, uh, mm-hmm. I think, the entire time that, you know, might be a little bit counteractive to some of Gene's um, qualities. But also, yeah, I don't know. It was good and it was a fun read. And it was definitely something where I was like, I have to read a Gene story. Like, I was right. at that place of just being like, I can't put up with anymore. Somebody give me a goddamn Gene story, like, right now. <laughs> and so it was nice. And then, like, you got to see some things that, to me, were very much like Gene. Yeah, there are moments that I thought were perfect. It's just overall oh, yeah. I was left with a feeling of, like, I don't feel like this is how Gene would think or react. 
the part that I did like was whenever Storm uh, was, you know, being mind controlled or whatever. And uh, Jean was they were like, well, we have to take her out or people are going to die. And Jean's like, I guess people are going to die. Yeah. We're not right, going to take her out. We're not going to hurt Storm. That's not happening. And that to me was just like, OK, <laughs> like I started crying. I mean, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I mean, that's it. Right. Like the whole thing was like just kind of trying to. uh tell you like things are going to be okay which at the time i think was a really important thing to put in a comic because everything was very bleak i also think that the point it was trying to make about mutant nationhood was good and obviously krakoa has taken that to the next level yeah one thing i think is a little odd is Jean's political role on krakoa while she has been on the quiet council oh has not been enormously emphasized given that in red she was trying to do something very similar so it I know. feels a little disjointed to me that there's actually a, a question super from a disjointed listener yeah. that i think is a good question that this leads into is garrett rooney writes despite her enormous power Jean has rarely been placed in a leadership role with the notable exception being x-men red which was frankly cut far too short for the story it was trying to tell now, since Hoxpox, she's been somewhat sidelined, more often seen as a part of the Summers family than as her own character. Why do you think this is? And do you think we'll ever get a chance to see Jean in a leadership role again? And I guess what I would say to that is, I think Hickman has a long game plan with Jean that I'm interested in. And I think that the end of Ten of Swords was meant to be Jean kind of shaking herself out of that domestic happiness that she was allowing herself to have on Krakoa and assuming more of that role but I agree that she has been I wouldn't say subordinate to Scott because I don't think that's correct I know that's been a criticism I don't quite agree with it but definitely part of a unit as opposed to in red where now in part because Scott was dead at the time but where she was fully leading the X-Men herself and I don't know what that is. And it is like one thing about the Krakoa era that I am crazy about, obviously, that I do question a little bit. What do you think? Oh, yeah, I have struggled so, so much. Honestly, uh, I do really enjoy so much of the Krakoa stories. But for me, a lot of X-Men stories kind of live and die on like how good their Storm is and how good their Jean is. Mm-hmm. And uh, Storm, you know, just has kind of turned around over the last few months. Uh, but for there was a minute there where I was like, what is going on with this character? Like, she's not doing anything and like all of that. And like she was in kind of a supportive role as well. And then you have uh, Jean, who, yeah, this has been rough. Like, there's all kinds of scenes where I'm just like, nope. (laughs) Like, whatever. um, The things that she goes along with in this, I just cannot believe that Jean would go along with. Oh, that's interesting. Because that's it. Like, every time you see Jean, it's like as much as like a jerk or like a bully she can be, she's still always appealing for that other side. Like, she's still always trying to be a good person. Like, as you said, she thinks she is a good person. Mm -hmm. So she's like the person who, in my opinion, 
I just don't see Jean letting them condemn Sabretooth like that. I don't really see Jean talking to Magneto like they're people who can even work together. Like, he's been trying to kill her since she was a teenager. And that's true, of course, with all of the X-Men. But there's never been a reconciliation between those two. And, like, there's just so many things where I'm just like, I just don't buy it. Whenever she tries to argue with Hank and she's just like, yo, I don't want to kill these people. Like, what are you talking about? And then she does it anyway. It's like she tells him off, but she still does it. Oh, see, so this is where this is where I disagree. So I agree that I want to see more of Jean's tensions with Eric. I think that will probably happen now that she has left the Quiet Council. Sure, yeah. But I agree because part of why X Factor forms in the first place in the 80s is because Jean comes back to life and it's like Magneto's the headmaster at Xavier's. We're not going back there. Yeah. I think that that's absolutely true. The Sabretooth thing is complicated. I think that I think that they make an example of him and I think that we're supposed to be a little perturbed by it. But at the same time, he is an unrepentant rapist and murderer who says he won't stop. Right. So for their experiment of amnesty, he doesn't, I mean, if even Celine will be like, yeah, I'll stop eating people if you'll feed me and give me a pardon, it becomes hard to justify having that guy around who just won't, you know, <laughs> like won't behave. Yeah. But I agree that, I agree that it feels, and th- here's the thing, it's coupled with her putting the Marble Girl costume back on. Yeah. <laughs> which makes her feel younger. I like that costume and I think I get what they're doing with it, which is having her, as she did in Dark Phoenix, assert herself as an individual who is not the Phoenix, because that's what that costume means to her. But the fact that she's in that costume, she is very deferential to Xavier and she does things that are a little questionable, I think have made people wonder if something's, that was the biggest evidence people use for, oh, Xavier's doing something to their minds, which I don't necessarily think is true. The era immediately preceding House of X doesn't link up cleanly with House of X very well. And I think that that was unavoidable given the scope of the project and how much advanced time it took to plan it. But Jean is a character where it feels particularly jarring, I think. And I get that completely. But I disagree about her and Hank. I went into this in the Hank episode with Spencer Ackerman, but I think that Jean on X-Force is the best written Jean in the line right now. And I think that that is exactly how Jean would behave. Jean doesn't cause a fuss about them doing things for the good of whatever, for of mutant kind of the earth. She objects to Hank condescending to her. And that, I think, is correct. But it is a dark take on Jean that she would see what happens in Terra Verde and not put a stop to the whole operation. It just reminds me of, like, X-Factor Jean, basically. Like, it is kind of like... It is very X-Factor Jean, but to me that's interesting. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, it could be interesting. I think that it is, like, somewhat interesting. It doesn't, like, make me not want to read it or something. The part I don't like is the way that... I like the summer house dynamic a lot. And I really like that Scott and Jean are getting to be parents to their kids mm-hmm. for the first time, really outside of adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. But I do think that she has not had a lot of room to operate outside of that. And X-Force, the book is simply not about her. 
Uh, yeah. I'm hopeful that with her and Scott saying, all right, we're officially restarting the X-Men and we're not going to listen to everything the council says, that she'll be getting more focus because it does feel like Hickman has a plan for her, but I would agree that in the first year she didn't get to do a ton. With Storm, I think there was an obvious reason for that, which is that they didn't want to fuck up whatever Ta-Nehisi Coates was doing in Black Panther. Sure. And COVID really messed with all the timelines on that. Like, Celine was doing evil stuff at Ta-Nehisi Coates' Captain America. And at the end of that arc now, they're like, there's a council on Krakoa that would like to speak to you. But I feel like that story has to take place at the very beginning of Krakoa. Because we've seen her around. So it's like things like that where it's just hard to to sync it all up. And so with Storm, I think they were being careful until they were more in the clear. And I think that that Vita Ayala issue during Ten of Swords was a deck clearing moment. It's like, okay, Storm's officially like an X-Men character again. Let's do things with Yeah. Her. Yeah, which was good. Oh, yeah. My favorite Storm story in 30 years. Yeah, in a minute, for sure. With Jean, I think it's harder to identify why it is. I think we are going to see her back in a leadership role now that this new team is forming. The question is whether we will see her in a leadership role that is as assertive as Scott's. I want to see conflict between them as to how their squad should operate, because I don't want her to just agree with what he says. You know what I mean? That's my worry now that they're both back essentially that never happens too like that's the thing is is like if you look through this entire history there's so many times whenever cyclops says something or xavier says something and gene says nope and does something totally different like whenever Sabretooth was initially being kept in the x-mansion and yeah (laughs) you know and she's just like i'm just gonna go beat the shit out of him in the basement for a while Mm -hmm. i guess like um because and why was it it was because jubilee was scared and like she didn't really pay attention until she saw jubilee was so scared and then she was like yeah i'm gonna go beat the shit out of this guy for for a while and like i think that that and that was incomplete like xavier didn't say that was okay and like right. scott was definitely just like you're doing this because of wolverine aren't you and it's like she probably just wants to beat the shit out of saber tooth um but like yeah i think that that's something i mean and it happens again and again like how many times does scott even if so many times scott will say something and gene's like bust out the wall like i'm gone i'll see you in like three days you know like Mm -hmm. she's constantly just kind of goes her own way and you saw that like a little bit in x-force but i just felt like it to me it was kind of reading like a gene who's kind of lost again and i can appreciate that but it's also something that like i've kind of seen be like retread with her a lot and it's kind of the default for her character to be kind of like that i guess and to be kind of like you know uh have to go through this like long process i guess like that and it makes sense in a way but it's also just like i don't know i we just got off of her as like the um leader of the x-men and now we're in this (laughs) like zone where she's kind of like I don't know, in kind of a limbo in a way. I do think that whatever's about to happen with Colossus might be a breaking point between her and Hank. Sure. And I think it's one of those plots that, again, the COVID delay really fucked with. Oh, yeah. Because I feel like that was supposed to be resolved before Ten of Swords. You know what I mean? Like, he's just been in Krakow and Gitmo for, like, six months or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's like, not... Oops. 
oops, we forgot about that. And in the solicits for the next issue, it's like, ah, Omega Red, like we're getting back on the, you know. <laughs> and I do think that that would track with Jean because of the thing you identified as very in character in X-Men Red, which is like, we're not hurting Storm, so I guess people are going to die. Like, Jean will allow for collateral damage, but she does not allow for her friends to be harmed. So I think that that may be where she and Hank reach a breaking point, particularly with her presumably... We don't know if it's going to be a new book or if it's going to be a refocus of the main X-Men title or whatever, but it seems clear that she and Scott have a new thing going on. Mm -hmm. So I think she's probably going to leave X-Force. And I'm wondering if it's been leading to something that we're going to see that will be satisfying. Because I do think the way Percy's writing her in that book is very on point. I just do also think that she has been more backgrounded than you would expect, given that they brought her back after 15 years and she's Jean Grey. Yeah, I appreciated that scene whenever she was talking about going to the cemetery as a kid with Hank. I thought mm-hmm. that that was pretty great. And whenever I was reading it, I was just, yeah, this person gets who Jean is, like, for sure. 100%. This writer is doing a good job. Um, there's, like, almost no space for Jean in this comic, though, so it kind of makes sense um, for it to be, like, a bit of a struggle, you know? Yeah. I think that might be a good moment to segue, because this is an enormously difficult character to explain to new readers. Yeah. For those of you who are newer to the X-Men, Jean Grey has been retconned more than maybe any other character in the history of comics. <laughs> Her most definitive story, the Dark Phoenix Saga, the most famous X-Men story in which she is the principal character, was retconned to not be her, and then unretconned so that it was her, and yada, yada, yada. So what I am going to now try to do, and this one is going to be rough, but I'm going to really make an effort, is to give you a Cerebro character file on Jean Grey that goes in publication history, as I always do, and tells you what was true as it was happening and explains to you how the retcons happened and when they happened and catches you up all the way through to our new Krakoan status quo and to where Jean is now. So let's go to that and then I will bring us right back here for more with Sarah Century on Jean Grey. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Jean Elaine Grey, initially codenamed Marvel Girl, but eventually better known as Phoenix, is an original X-Man and the only female member of the team created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Introduced in September 1963's X-Men No. 1, Jean is the newest student at Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, and often relegated to the role of damsel in distress or love interest for most of the boys to fight over. Under writer Chris Claremont in the 70s, she was dramatically transformed into Phoenix, the most powerful superhero at Marvel Comics, and ultimately an existential threat to the cosmos. True to the second codename, Jean has died and been reborn several times, and her history has been complicated by a number of far-reaching retcons. In the 60s stories, Jean's primary role in the plot is to be at first the person who needs things explained to her, providing exposition for the reader, and then the beautiful girl Scott Summers, aka Cyclops, pines after from afar. When she's first introduced, her only power is telekinesis, and it takes her some time to establish fine control over it. Jean is courted by Warren Worthington III, the high-flying angel, but finds herself more attracted to Scott. Privately, Professor Xavier at one point contemplates his own attraction to her, which, yikes. 
Stan Lee left his writing role on the book after 20 issues and was replaced by Roy Thomas. In X-Men 24, Jean's parents insist she get a proper college education, so she shifts her role as Marvel Girl to a part-time weekend gig and attends Metro College in New York City. Over the next few months, their time together now more precious, Scott and Jean finally have a candid conversation about their feelings and slowly begin dating. When the Professor is killed by Grotesque the Subhuman in X-Men 42, the X-Men disband for a time and Jean embarks on a career as a fashion model. Scott, working as a radio journalist, acts the part of the jealous boyfriend on set to keep other men in line. Her psychic powers expand to include telepathy, allowing her to take over Professor Xavier's old role as mental coordinator of the team. In X-Men 65, it's revealed in a retcon that Professor Xavier is actually alive and had faked his death with Jean's assistance, allowing a decoy, the reformed villain Changeling, who had been terminally ill, to die in his place. Jean is relieved she no longer has to keep up the deception, and nobody seems especially mad at her for some reason. In any case, after the next issue, the book was cancelled and sent into reprints. The X-Men were essentially retired for five years, until Len Wein and Dave Cockrum relaunched the series in 1975's Giant Size X-Men No. 1. In this story, the 60s X-Men are captured by the living island Krakoa, a parasitic entity that feeds on mutants, and a new team is assembled to rescue them. After the mission's success, all of the older members save Cyclops decide to retire and live normal lives. Jean tries to convince Scott to come with her, but knows he won't leave his duties behind. They part with a kiss and a declaration of love. Chris Claremont then took over writing duties on the book, which he would perform for the next 16 years. Jean was his favorite character of the 60s set, and she quickly returns to the series in X-Men 98, his fourth issue. While on a date with Scott, Jean is kidnapped by mutant-hunting sentinel robots and taken to an orbital station outside Earth's atmosphere. The X-Men take a space shuttle to rescue her, but the shuttle's radiation shielding is damaged, and it seems they will have no way to return home. Jean realizes she's the only one who could possibly survive, and demands everyone else enter a specially shielded life cell in the rear of the craft. She then uses her telepathy to absorb spaceflight knowledge from their friend Dr. Peter Corbeau and her telekinesis to shield herself from radiation as she pilots them home. Doing all this at once proves impossible, and cosmic radiation begins to enter the damaged shuttle after only ten minutes. Jean accepts her imminent death, her body quickly wasting away, but successfully crash-lands the shuttle in Jamaica Bay. The X-Men have only a moment to mourn her before she erupts from the wreckage in a new superhero costume, declaring herself Phoenix, no longer the woman they knew, but fire and life incarnate. Still weak, she's rushed to the hospital, where it appears she suffered no ill effects from the radiation. Instead, her mutation has been supercharged, and she has become exponentially more powerful. After returning to the apartment she shares in Manhattan with her roommate, the human vigilante Misty Knight, she's forced to reveal her mutant powers to her frightened parents when she's attacked by the cosmic villain Fire Lord. Meanwhile, Professor Xavier's new love interest, Princess Lalandra of the alien Shi'ar Empire, don't worry about it, is kidnapped and taken back to Shi'ar space by agents of her brother, the Mad Magister de Ken, Shi'ar Emperor, who plans to harness the omnipotent power of the Macron Crystal, an ancient object that is a nexus of all realities in the multiverse. Deken's tampering with the Macron crystal threatens all creation, and Jean uses her new cosmic powers as Phoenix to stabilize the crystal. To anchor herself in sanity, she siphons some of the life force of two volunteers, her best friend Aurora Monroe, the X-Man Storm, and the space pirate Corsair, whom she discovers is Cyclops' long-lost father. In the process of repairing the crystal and saving reality, Jean touches the life forces of every being in the universe. It is a heady experience. Back on Earth, Jean explains her mutant powers and the nature of the X-Men to her parents. She rejoins the team full-time, only to be captured alongside her teammates by the evil mutant Mesmero, who brainwashes them into becoming circus performers. Don't worry about it. 
freed from his control by their former teammate Hank McCoy, codenamed Beast, who's now a member of the Avengers. The X-Men are taken to their archenemy Magneto's secret base in Antarctica. There, a volcanic disaster separates the team and leads Jean and Hank to believe they are the only survivors. Grieving the apparent deaths of her lover Scott, her best friend Aurora, and the rest of the X-Men, Jean takes a vacation to Greece to clear her head, and then travels to Muir Island off the coast of Scotland to visit the X-Men's ally Dr. Moira McTaggart, the world's leading expert on mutant genetics, who runs tests on Jean's further evolved phoenix mutation. Around this time, the illusion-casting evil mutant Mastermind, using the alias Sir Jason Wingard and a false handsome appearance, begins stalking Jean and insinuating himself into her life. Over time, it's as if reality begins to shift around her, and Jean experiences vivid daydreams, supposed past life regressions in which she is an 18th century plantation mistress who is Wingard's lover. Yeah, I know, not great. Jean is overjoyed to be reunited with the other X-Men after a battle against Dr. McTaggart's son Kevin, the evil mutant called Proteus. Scott admits to Jean that having believed her dead himself, he had gone on dates with another woman, the vigilante Colleen Wing. Jean isn't upset and tells him she would want him to move on if she did actually die. She does not tell him about the strange vivid dreams of her apparent past life with Jason Wingard, which are occurring more and more frequently. In the strangest one yet, she marries Wingard and is presented to the mysterious Hellfire Club as its new Black Queen. The X-Men and the Hellfire Club then find themselves in competition over Kitty Pride, a newly awakened teenage mutant desired as a student by both Professor Xavier and Emma Frost, a telepath who acts as the club's White Queen. Jean uses her telepathic powers to convince Kitty's father to send her to Xavier's instead of Frost's Massachusetts Academy, a cavalier use of her gift that disturbs Scott and Aurora. She tells Scott she and the professor do things like that all the time. Later, when the White Queen and her operatives kidnap and torture several of the X-Men, Jean arrives as backup. She rescues and comforts Kitty Pride, and then engages Frost in a psychic duel. Jean shows the villainess no mercy, devastating her mind, and Emma is apparently killed in a last-ditch suicide attack. Later stories will reveal that she actually survived, but spent many months in a coma, recovering from Phoenix's telepathic assault. Deciding to investigate the Hellfire Club, Scott and Jean travel to their old classmate Warren's home in New Mexico, as he inherited a membership in the exclusive club from his wealthy parents. Scott is stunned when Jean displays a new level of telekinetic control, using her power to hold back his uncontrollable optic blast. Staring into his eyes for the first time, she encourages him to make love to her on a butte high above the desert. When the team does infiltrate the Hellfire Club, Jean quickly succumbs to Mastermind's illusions and becomes trapped in one. Once again believing herself Lady Wingard, the plantation mistress, she sees the X-Men as rebels, and her best friend Storm as her unruly slave. Again, not great. As the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club, she battles her friends, only to break free from Mastermind's conditioning when Cyclops appears to die in the illusion. While the X-Men battle the rest of the club's inner circle, Jean quietly hunts down Mastermind, finding him and using her exponentially advanced telepathy to give him a terrible gift. She makes his mind one with the entire universe, driving him completely insane and leaving him catatonic. Driven over the edge by this act of vengeance, Jean gives in to the cosmic hunger that has gnawed within her since she was first transformed, becoming the evil entity Dark Phoenix. She battles her friends, easily overpowering them, but finds her energy depleted. To restore herself, she flies to outer space and travels to the Dabari star system, where she devours the galaxy's sun, killing its five billion inhabitants. She returns to Earth to battle Professor Xavier in a telepathic duel, and her conscience manages to take hold for a moment and reassert her regular personality. Jean collapses in Scott's arms, and he proposes marriage. She accepts. Then they're all dragged back into space by the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, and Jean is put on trial for interstellar genocide. Her fate is to be decided in a trial by combat on the blue area of the moon, and Jean decides that if she's going to die, she wants to do it as herself and not a cosmic being. 
She abandons her Phoenix costume, instead donning the mask and mini dress she once designed to wear as Marvel Girl. After the X-Men are defeated by the Imperial Guard, Jean feels Dark Phoenix returning within her and refuses to give in again. With a cheerful goodbye to Scott, she kills herself. Thus ends 1980's The Dark Phoenix Saga, the most famous X-Men story. It's a story that was heavily altered by editorial interference, which I will try to explain for you now. Claremont and his co-plotter, artist John Byrne, had realized it was a problem that Jean was becoming more and more powerful with every issue. They decided to make her become a villain, a challenge for the team, and then end the story by taking away her phoenix powers. But editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, aghast at the genocide of the Dabari system in the story, insisted that Jean had to be truly punished. Byrne had always taken the view that the phoenix was a cosmic entity possessing Jean, and hadn't anticipated Jean would be blamed for phoenix's actions. Claremont, by contrast, had mostly thought of the phoenix as an awakened part of Jean. Both agreed, upon reviewing their work, that the character did not read as possessed. Shooter suggested Jean be imprisoned for life by the Shi'ar, but Claremont felt the X-Men would never accept this and would constantly try to free her. Angry, he suggested simply killing her off. A bluff Shooter called, over Claremont and Byrne's objections, and decided would be the conclusion of the story. The co-writers ultimately decided to make it Jean's decision, and had her end her own life to protect the universe from the creature she had become. Jean Grey would remain dead for the next six years, replaced in the narrative by two new characters, Scott's new love interest, a human woman named Madeline Pryor who bears a shocking resemblance to Jean, and whom he marries after accepting Jean is truly gone, and Rachel Summers, Jean and Scott's daughter from a dystopian alternate future, the new bearer of the Phoenix Power. In 1981's Bizarre Adventures 27, Chris Claremont significantly revises Jean's origin story. He establishes in a retcon that her telepathic powers first catalyzed as a small child, when her best friend Annie Richardson was fatally struck by a car while they were playing together. Jean found herself inside Annie's mind, experiencing every sensation as the other girl died. Traumatized, she became withdrawn and isolated, till someone recommended her parents call Charles Xavier. Xavier used his own powers to block Jean's telepathy, and began secretly training her in the use of her powers, taking her as his first student long before he ever formed the X-Men. In 1986, without consulting Claremont, Jim Shooter decided to launch a new title called X-Factor that would reunite the original X-Men team. At first, the group was to feature the character Dazzler in place of Jean, but the writer Kurt Busiek, years earlier when he was only a fan, had once been challenged to come up with a way to bring back Jean while still meeting Shooter's moral standards. His idea was a retcon establishing that the Phoenix was an imposter, a cosmic being that believed itself to be Jean, but had actually taken her place during the shuttle crash in X-Men 101. Jean herself would have been in suspended animation all this time, healing from radiation poisoning in a cocoon beneath Jamaica Bay. Byrne, who no longer worked with Claremont on Uncanny X-Men, had heard this idea and passed it on to Shooter, who approved it as a means of bringing back Marvel Girl for X-Factor. Claremont strenuously objected to this, all but begging Shooter not to resurrect Jean or bring Scott out of retirement. He suggested instead using Jean's older sister Sarah, a background character not yet established as a mutant, whom he argued could be revealed to have a subtle power and become a potential love interest for Warren, Hank, or Bobby. Over his protests, Jean was resurrected using the Busick concept, now entirely divorced as a character from Phoenix. In X-Factor, initially written by Bob Layton, but quickly taken over by Claremont's friend and collaborator Louise Simonson, Jean adjusts to a world where a being that claimed to be her had lived her life for years and committed terrible crimes. Her telepathy deactivated by the process of her awakening, she relies only on her telekinesis and reunites with her former classmates, including Scott, who abandons Madeline and their newborn son to see Jean, not telling her that he is now a husband and father. Jean is disappointed that Scott and Warren have retired from superheroics, and is horrified that Xavier's school has been taken over by their old enemy Magneto, who claims to be reformed. 
At her urging, they form a new team, using the cover identity of X-Factor, an organization advertising itself as a freelance mutant apprehending service, while secretly also operating as the mutant vigilantes, the exterminators, and training the mutants X-Factor takes into custody. After Scott accidentally calls Jean Natty in a slip of the tongue, Jean is beside herself to learn Scott has concealed his marriage from her, and disturbed, upon seeing a photo of Madeline Pryor, to discover his wife strongly resembles her. After her sister Sarah, a mutant rights activist, disappears without a trace, Jean encourages Scott to return to his family. They discover that all evidence of Madeline Pryor's existence has been erased, along with any trace of her son with Scott. Police find a body they believe to be Madeline's, and Scott returns to New York with Jean, confused. After a conflict with the ancient mutant apocalypse, X-Factor drops the mutant hunting facade, and the team declare themselves publicly as mutant superheroes. At the same time, the X-Men, and Madeline Pryor, whom they had rescued from the killers called the Marauders, sacrificed their lives on national television to save the world in the 1988 franchise-wide event, Fall of the Mutants. Madeline leaves a message for Scott to tell him their son is missing and needs to be found. Scott is devastated by Maddie's apparent death, which pisses Jean off. He eventually admits to her that he only married Madeline because she reminded him of Jean, and somehow this leads to Scott and Jean getting back together. I know. Upset by the death of the X-Men, Jean finally decides to visit her parents, who still believed she was dead. She explains the whole Phoenix retcon, and she and Scott then track down his infant son in a laboratory beneath the orphanage in Nebraska where Scott grew up. They're attacked by Nanny and the Orphan Maker, a pair of strange mutant criminals obsessed with mutant children, and Jean realizes that two of Nanny's brainwashed child soldiers are her niece and nephew Galen and Joey, Sarah Gray's children. She's unable to rescue them, and then Scott's baby Nathan is kidnapped by demons. This leads directly into the franchise-wide event Inferno, in which Manhattan is overrun by a demonic army led by Madeline Pryor, who has been with the X-Men all this time undercover in Australia. Don't worry about it. She accidentally sold her soul to the demon Sim, and then made a further pact with the archdemon Nastir in a bid to find baby Nathan herself. Corrupted by her dark bargain, Maddie becomes the Goblin Queen, steadily losing her mind as Dark Phoenix once did. In a substantial retcon, it turns out she's actually a clone of Jean, created by the evil Mr. Sinister in an effort to crossbreed the Grey and Summer's mutant bloodlines, and animated by a shard of the Phoenix Force the night Dark Phoenix died on the moon. Driven mad by this revelation, Maddie attempts to ritually sacrifice baby Nathan to end the world. She's stopped by the combined might of the X-Men and X-Factor, and tries to telepathically drag Jean into death with her in a suicide attack. In the end, only Madeline dies, and Jean absorbs Madeline's memories, and, by reclaiming the piece of her psyche the Phoenix had stolen and used to animate Madeline's body, also absorbs the memories of what Phoenix and Dark Phoenix did in her name. Jean spends the rest of the run of X-Factor trying to integrate these personalities into a whole, and also refusing to marry Scott, because she remembers him previously proposing to both Phoenix and Madeline, and the whole thing feels kind of weird. She's also really freaked to discover that Rachel Summers is their alternate universe daughter, which just adds to the lack of agency she feels about her future. She initially rejects Rachel, but does take on a maternal role with baby Nathan, who's genetically her child as Madeline was an exact copy. When Apocalypse infects Nathan with a terminal techno-organic virus, she's devastated by the necessity of entrusting the baby to a woman called Ascani, a time traveler who promises them she can cure Nathan by taking him 2,000 years into the future. They will, however, be unable to return. In the 1991 relaunch of the X-Men, the X-Men and X-Factor teams combine once more into one group, with Cyclops leading one squad, the Blue Team, and Storm leading the other, the Gold Team. The name X-Factor is adopted by Scott's brother Alex and his girlfriend Lorna, who start a government-sponsored team to act as liaisons between the public and mutant kind. Jean is assigned to the Gold Team, and becomes a regular cast member in Uncanny X-Men. Shortly after this overhaul of the line, Chris Claremont departed the X-Books. 
1994 franchise-wide event Executioner's Song, Cable, the grizzled leader of the new team X-Force, is revealed to be baby Nathan Christopher Summers, who grew up in the far future and traveled back in time. His evil twin, the time-traveling terrorist called Strife, attempts to assassinate Charles Xavier with the techno-organic virus. Strife claims that he's Nathan and that Cable's an imperfect clone. By the end of the event, Cable and Strife are both believed dead, and Scott and Jean are traumatized all over again. Eventually, Jean decides to propose to Scott herself to shake things up from the memories she had absorbed. The first person she tells is Rachel Summers, whom she regrets rejecting in her initial shock. Scott and Jean marry in 1994's X-Men 30, and Rachel is delighted. On their honeymoon, Jean and Scott have their consciousnesses pulled 2,000 years into the future by an elderly version of Rachel, Mother Ascani. In the miniseries The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, Scott and Jean spend 12 years in the future, living under aliases and raising baby Nathan. Their return to the moment they left when the future Rachel dies of old age, Cable never having known that his adoptive parents were secretly Scott and Jean. Mother Ascani's dying wish is for Jean to take the codename Phoenix and redeem it, and she agrees. In the present, Scott and Jean reunite with Cable as a family. Jean then manages to finally locate her sister Sarah, who has been partially assimilated by the techno-organic aliens called the Phalanx, don't worry about it, and dies when the Phalanx are destroyed. Then Onslaught happens, and I don't want to cover Onslaught. In the title X-Man, Jean's son from the alternate reality of the Age of Apocalypse, Nate Gray, an alternate version of Cable, don't worry about it, accidentally resurrects Madeline Pryor while trying to find Jean. Jean's not thrilled about it. There's more 90s stuff I don't really care about, and then in 2000 comes the franchise-wide event, The Twelve. Scott and Jean are revealed to be two of the titular Twelve, a group of mutants prophesied to defeat Apocalypse. This very complicated plot, don't worry about it, ends with Cyclops merging with Apocalypse to stop him. Though the X-Men rescue him in the miniseries The Search for Cyclops, he's left traumatized by his time merged with an ancient evil, and his personality grows colder and harder. This puts a strain on his marriage to Jean, leading into the 2001 relaunch New X-Men by Grant Morrison. In New X-Men, Jean and Scott struggle with the revelation of the Xavier School's secret nature to the whole world by the villain Cassandra Nova, and also with Jean's reconnection to the Phoenix Force thanks to the earlier intervention of the cosmic entity known as the Stranger. As she explores her bond with the Phoenix, Jean begins to suspect that Scott is having an affair with their new teammate, her old enemy Emma Frost. After she catches them in a compromising position in Scott's thoughts, she violates Emma's mind to find proof she and Scott are sleeping together. Jean brutally tears through Emma's memories to find they'd shared only thoughts, still inappropriate but technically not sex, and Scott storms off in a huff. Emma's diamond body is then found shattered, and while Jean is a suspect in the apparent murder, she proves her innocence and ultimately uses the Phoenix Force to revive Emma after Hank pieces her back together like a puzzle. Scott needs Emma, Jean decides, realizing that her marriage has truly gone awry. Jean and Logan then end up trapped on Magneto's abandoned headquarters, Asteroid M, as it hurtles toward the sun. Rather than watch Jean die, Logan Mercy kills her with his claws, but this fully awakens the Phoenix, and Jean is able to save them both. They return to Earth to join the other X-Men in battling Magneto, who has been driven mad and also extraordinarily empowered by the drug called Kick. Magneto's defeated, but decides to drive all his boosted power into Jean, giving her a planetary-level stroke that proves fatal. She dies in Scott's arms, pleading with him to live and be happy. Jean awakens 150 years later in the final arc of Grant Morrison's New X-Men, Here Comes Tomorrow. Fully realized as the White Phoenix of the Crown, the Phoenix's ultimate host, she's disturbed by the kick-devastated future she witnesses, and uses the Phoenix's ultimate power to erase the entire timeline by going back to a critical moment, Emma asking Scott to start a new life with her, and telepathically encouraging Scott to accept. Jean Grey was dead for much longer this time in publication. Fourteen years. 
She reappears a few times as the face of the phoenix, living in the white-hot room at the center of the Macron crystal. Honestly, don't worry about it. In the all-new X-Men relaunch by Brian Michael Bendis in 2012, Hank, angry at Cyclops and believing he's terminally ill himself, pulls teenage versions of the 60s X-Men forward in time to show Scott how far he's fallen. Young Jean is deeply disturbed to learn what became of her future self and rebels against her destiny. She refuses to explore her relationship with Scott, unlocks her telepathy without Xavier's supervision. Honestly, it's cool. It's a cool era for Jean. I'm not going to go into great detail here, but if you're a Jean fan, you should read this stuff. In 2018's Phoenix Resurrection by Matthew Rosenberg, Jean is finally resurrected by the Phoenix, and she tells it to get lost. Listen, this is running long. This is recent stuff. Go read it. This leads into X-Men Red by Tom Taylor, where Jean leads her own squad of X-Men in an effort to declare a mutant sovereign nation. It doesn't go very well, thanks to the machinations of Cassandra Nova, but Jean makes headway for her mutant nation at the United Nations, which fits a little awkwardly with the 2019 soft reboot Dawn of X by Jonathan Hickman, where Jean becomes part of the leadership on the new sovereign mutant nation on the living island Krakoa. As a member of the Quiet Council, she is now one of the core architects of the new country's laws, and decides to return to the classic 60s costume and codename of Marvel Girl. Back together with Scott, and apparently also with Logan in a fun little thruple, Jean moves into a home called Summer House on the Moon, in the place where Dark Phoenix died. There she and Scott raise their children Rachel and Nathan, and try to build a better world for mutant kind. After the franchise-wide event Ten of Swords makes Jean question her fellow counselors, she abandons her seat on the Quiet Council and reforms the X-Men with Cyclops. Amid it all, she's extremely relieved she doesn't have to participate in this big Avengers event about the Phoenix. X-Men! X-Men! And we're back! If you uh, followed that at all, I appreciate you. Thank you for (laughs) coming along with me on this cosmic ride. Sarah, I'd love to talk about your favorite Jean storylines and just take us away in whatever direction you want and we'll just go. (laughs) Well, you know, the biggest problem with Jean is is that if you try to recommend (laughs) storylines to people to read, um, there aren't a lot of great ones. It's kind of hard because this is a character who's almost always around and she has important moments, but not necessarily a lot of arcs that you can recommend to people. Because of course you can say Dark Phoenix, but then there's all of the problems around that. And then plus, like, you know, I mean, it not really being her and things like that, but then it was, on top it was of that, really her. Yeah, I think it was her. <laughs> I mean, they just kind of started doing that again, right? And being like, it was pretty much her, whatever. <laughs> Morrison basically did. And then they've all followed suit, thankfully. Yeah, everybody is just like, whatever, it's her. Like, We're far enough away from the Comics Code Authority at this point that it's okay to say it was Jean and still have her be a hero who is repentant as opposed to right. <laughs> needing to kill her, which was... Jim Shooter yeah, is not Yeah, Jim Shooter is not anymore. there to be like, she must die. And then to be like, she must come back and be absolved. Like, Jim, stop. <laughs> you had it right the first time so i think that like the lead up to dark phoenix mm-hmm. is a more compelling gene story than dark phoenix is because dark phoenix is a great x-men story yeah. right? once she becomes dark phoenix it's not about her anymore it's about how the x-men react to her until the very end because it would be very uncomfortable to hear what gene's side of the story is because she's essentially being manipulated into like sexual activity she's being raped by mastermind yeah horrifying and the reason that she has morally degraded in the first place is because of xavier's tutelage so horrifying stuff yeah Yeah, if you really if, if we really heard her perspective it would be 
pretty raw stuff. So once she becomes Dark Phoenix, she's the antagonist until she kills herself at the end. Yeah, and also it's not really, you know, what's the deal? She just, like, flies around space and does terrible things. And, but it's right, like, and, there's not yeah. tons of character growth there. And then, of course, at the end, it's like she's so, like, repentant and remorseful for the things that she's done and, like, everything that it's just like, yeah, to me, that's just like, it's a great X-Men story. Of course, everything that everybody says about it is true. It's wonderful. But it's also just, like, not the best gene story. So if you were going to tell somebody you like read a great gene story you almost want to like steer them away from that story because it's like that's the least gene story that there is you know <laughs> like the lead up is a lot more interesting yeah my favorite scene in the dark phoenix saga and i think the best gene moment which i've mentioned before is when she rewrites kitty's father's mind to yeah. get her sent to xavier's right yeah the, and scott and aurora are really thrown because they're just like oh that's a lot and scott is particularly horrified and gene's just like what the professor may do this all the time yeah 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 and that's like you great learn all of this weirdness in the relationship between gene and xavier where you're like yikes yeah well i mean there is of course that part very early on where he has a thought bubble about how much he wants to fuck her but that luckily right. is never mentioned again after the 60s it is mentioned well, again because it's mentioned in the onslaught yes. comic right like yes but which onslaught has a lot of moments <laughs> also also has an issue where mark wade implies that magneto sexually abused the scarlet witch that's I really, I choose lot, to. Yeah. I choose to not regard yeah. onslaught when I can avoid However, it. However, I would say that the gene story that that happens in is actually a really good gene story. It is because yeah. it has her and Bobby doing like their go shopping thing, mm -hmm. which once again the 90s were trying to tell us something. But right. they go shopping together, and it's like she. It's to me those we don't think about what's going on with Jean and we don't, there's so many times where you see her as a character and there's no context for the fact that no matter what happens, Jean is always going to be kind of an isolated character. Like no matter how many people are around her, she is a character that you can't possibly understand what it's like to be her because she is surrounded by constant thought noise. Right. And so that onslaught story where she walks in and all it's like, she doesn't have the strength to completely shield herself from everybody's thoughts. And so she just keeps hearing all the terrible shit that people are thinking about her. And like, that's just like her casual, walking through her day and like that is how it is for her and I think that that story was so good at like doing that right and like kind of showing you what it's like to be her and there's so so few stories that do that now there's a lot of things in that issue where I'm kind of like nah that. <laughs> like take it out well that's the issue with a lot of 90s storylines I like right is that I, I go conceptually sure. this is really something <laughs> but then yeah. Ay, 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 you know? Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, that story, too, though, I think it might be X-Men number 28 or something that has her versus Sabretooth, right, mm -hmm. on the cover. And it's just, like, basically her responding to the trauma of Jubilee and being like, yeah, I'm going to go take this guy out for, you know, just, like, yeah. beat the shit out of him, tell him he's a piece of garbage, and then just, like, walk off. Um, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I think that those are really good stories. I think a lot of people would say read X-Men Red, and I would kind of agree with that just because it is is kind of the the bridge i guess <laughs> that we get between like morrison and like the you know dawn of x stuff i guess i think it's worth reading because it shows at the very least i think what editorial wanted to do with jean after bringing her back uh-huh like what marvel wanted to do with her as a character and i think that that is worth looking at because to me 
Like, I never would have brought Jean back. Ever. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have brought her back the first time. But I especially wouldn't have brought her back after Morrison. Because to me, the best Jean Grey story is New X-Men. Hot take to some people. But I think she is brilliant in that. I think that she has an incredible arc. And after Here Comes Tomorrow... I would have been fine with Jean just being God. For me, it's like I never would have killed Jean, honestly. So I well, right, that's completely... the other that's the other perspective, right? Yeah, I would have just been like, no, it's so much more interesting if she has to like live with the things that she's done. Well, that's right? what Claremont and, like, thought. That's what Claremont wanted yes, to do. Exactly right. And then um, same with the Grant Morrison stuff. Like, I do love that arc. I think that she's so interesting in that, and just a compelling character in general. We see a lot of things. Uh, there's just a lot of humanization, right? Mm-hmm. Like they wrote her really just in a captivating way. Um, and you know, things that I don't like about her were on display in that arc. I just love the way that they wrote her relationship with Scott. Like I make jokes about how there are no straight X Men. There's not. And it's interesting because I've read your article about Jean Grey as a queer figure, which is just so foreign to my conception of the character. Because to me, while Scott has sublimated weirdness that they're now exploring, good weirdness. I always found their relationship to be like the most heterosexual thing about the X-Men. It is, but look at how they cling to each other. It's like, that's kind of the thing, right? Is like they are, it's like they're clinging to each other in the way that they are the only ones that they have, like through that, through their entire childhood, like all the way up into you know, it's like they are each other's person and it's not out of choice as much as it is out of necessity. Right. And I just, I loved the way that Morrison wrote them as basically the couple that peaked in high school but have stayed together and they're not right for each other anymore. Sure. And they're clinging to it because it's all they've ever known. Yeah. And I found that very compelling. And it was the most compelling I had found either of them since X Factor. Easily. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. I like Jean and Cyclops being exes. Like, I like them being apart. Same. I'm a kind of, like, I love the weird thing they're doing with Wolverine just because it's, like, a fun queer storyline, no matter uh-huh. how much they can put on the page or not. But part of me really doesn't like that Scott and Jean are back together. Yeah, I don't really either. I didn't like her with Wolverine either. Um, I kind of liked Jean by herself in X-Men Red, honestly. That was kind of the I way did I liked too. it. That was the thing about X-Men Red I really liked. I like in the X-Men Red annual when she's talking to old man Logan and mm-hmm. she says, so you're not my Logan. And he says, and you're not my Jean. And she says, I was never your Jean. So good. Yeah, that's really good. Because while she was attracted to him, there was never an inkling in her head that that would be something that would actually happen. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that. It makes sense to me that she would be willing to let him in if Scott's involved. Like, the triangle makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, yeah. It's just, I would have liked, particularly, again, because she was dead for so long, I would have liked to see her not thrust back into the Scott and Jean thing. Yeah, it would have been superior. Yeah, it would have been way, way better. Um, I don't like them getting back together. I think that it's fine, you know, but it's and it's like, uh, yeah, maybe like there's parts where it's like 
I can understand why, you know, so many people ship those two so much and like all of this stuff. And it's just right. like, they're I get an it. iconic couple. I get it. But I think Scott's more interesting with Emma and I think Dean's more interesting by herself. Honestly, I kind of think that they're both more interesting by themselves. But I do think that Emma's relationship well, with I, Scott. The Emma and Scott thing, like as it went on, I think that it became another case where I wanted them to break up yeah. because I didn't think yeah. they were serving each other's narratives anymore. Particularly, I thought Emma all, yeah. Emma's narrative was... No, she, they subordinated her to Scott a lot of the time. Too much, like in a way that just yeah. didn't make sense. No, because it's like, you know that like Emma is the dom in this situation. There's nothing you can tell me that's going to make me not think that. Correct. I loved in Chip Zdarsky's X-Men vs. Fantastic Four miniseries that now has been rendered kind of moot in a strange way by events in Fantastic Four. But in that miniseries, which I enjoyed, there's that great scene where Scott goes up to the quiet council for a minute and Emma's like, oh, have you thought about, you know, joining us up here? And he's like, oh, no, Miss Frost, as you well know, I live to serve. So good. And that's what the Summers boys are, right? Like they are the most sub straight guys on the planet to the point where how straight are they really? It's it's funny because it's Wolverine that really gets them both going. If you look at Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown, like their most homoerotic uh, stuff yeah. is always with Wolverine. yeah. I mean, yeah, join the club, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I like, it makes me think of when Madeline, to bring it back to Madeline, as I always do, in X-Man, and I don't love most of the Madeline stuff in X-Man, but there's a great moment where she and Jean are face-to-face again for yes, the first time. love it. I love that story. And Madeline's like, oh, what? Are you worried about your marriage to Scotty? Well, don't worry. I'm not interested. Been there, done that, and his little brother, too. <laughs> That's great. I just absolutely love that. But there is a type of person who syncs up well with them, and it tends to be a dominant personality. If you look at Lorna with Alex, or at Jean with Scott, or at Emma with Scott, or at Madeline with both of them, it is sort of a pattern with them. Yeah, I agree. I think X-Men Red is worth reading because it's a transitional moment. But I have always been more interested in Jean's apotheosis into the Phoenix. And so for me, it was if they had brought her back and she had been like Rachel, if she had been the white Phoenix of the crown securing her power, I think I would have liked that more. Of course. It feels a little bit like a step backward to me to have her reject the Phoenix as though it's not intrinsic to her. And Part of that, I guess, is because Marvel wants to play with the Phoenix, evidently. Yeah, (laughs) kind of a bummer. It's just a bummer because to me, it's so intrinsic to Jean. And I thought that one of the most important things Morrison did in their run was underline that the two of them are inextricably linked and that she is the only true host of the Phoenix Force and fix the retcon as best they could. But yeah, I, I, I agree with your general point that it's hard to pick out specific Jean stories because she's kind of just there. I think that's true of really all the original five X-Men besides Scott. They tend to be supporting characters. With Jean, the real problem is that in the 60s stuff, she's no place. She's just so flat in that run because she's the girl and she's not really allowed to do much. I don't think it's until Claremont that she really gets to assert herself as a character. I do recommend absolutely reading from Giant Size up through Dark Phoenix and getting that whole arc because I think it's brilliant. 
And I love her in that arc. And I think that she's so present and so fascinating. The stuff with the Macron crystal when she's Phoenix is like incredible to me. It is. And it's beautiful. Like that's so just beautiful. Gorgeous, gorgeous comics. Yeah. The way John Byrne draws her when she is like becoming, again, it's it's the apotheosis, right? Like she's becoming this dark god. She can feel it. It's the first hint of Dark Phoenix before Dark Phoenix is that scene where she takes a little bit of everyone's life force at the Macron crystal because she has to. And she's like, I have to be really careful not to take too much. And she's like, kind of becomes like a hissing ghost. (laughs) It's really cool. (laughs) Yeah. And then I like the arc where she and Hank think the rest of the X-Men are dead. I like the arc where she goes to Muir Island and talks to Moira about becoming Phoenix. And Moira is terrified of her. I love that. Terrified of the Phoenix gene. She's like, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, all the tests, you know, <laughs> I, can't do, I can't do good Scottish accent. It's nope, like, nobody can. Ah, like all the tests are saying you're normal, but uh, you're feeling terrifying <laughs> to me, to me. So she's fucking terrified. Yeah, who wouldn't be? Yeah, no, it, it has a similar vibe to in the late 80s, early 90s when slutty Moira shows up because she's under the influence <laughs> of the Shadow King. And it's yeah. just like, Moira's here, but her hair's real big, and she's in a leather miniskirt. <laughs> and everyone's very disturbed by it. <laughs> that sort of feels like Moira's delayed reaction to seeing Phoenix Jean for the first time. Like, <laughs> I could be powerful too. <laughs> and of course, I think that what's really fascinating now with Moira is going back to those stories. And obviously this wasn't the intention of the time, but reading them now with the knowledge that she's Moira Axe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was mind-blowing stuff. Yeah. And looking back on the Proteus arc specifically, it's real wild. Yo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I did the same thing because I was like, That was one of the first first things I did. Yeah. Exactly. Whenever I first read that Moira had been a mutant this whole time and that, you know, in that arc, I was just like, oh, gotta read Proteus, like, right now. Like, (laughs) I want to see. Proteus is one of the best stories in that 70s run. It is, yeah. And it's better now. And it's so, it's so much better now, but it's still, it's like, that doesn't change. It's great, even if if Moira's just a human and everything she's saying is true, it's great. But this is one retcon where I gotta say, it just has made everything more fun to me. Because going back to that story now, and it's like, not only is this her son who she's had to lock away or he'll kill people and that she's terrified of him. It's her son that she specifically intentionally created. Right. Because she wanted to create more Omega level mutants. Yeah. So she. It makes it more horrifying. It's so much more distressing. And there are people who feel that this retcon has sort of assassinated Moira as a character. But I think. It I has, mean. I just disagree completely. I think. I mean, it's made her a more morally suspect person. Yes. But it yeah. has also given her agency that she's never really had in the story. Ever, yeah. And I think that, I think it's absolute genius. I can't wait for my Moira McTaggart action figure to arrive. Can you, that, oh. look, listen, that should say it all. There's a Moira McTaggart action figure. <laughs> yeah. Who could have, if you had gone back in time, like there was barely a storm, much less a Moira McTaggart. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, I think the Proteus story is great. And then by the time you get to Proteus, mastermind is already in her head yeah so dark phoenix follows pretty shortly thereafter yeah and then i i really do think the simonson x factor is great i have my madeline bias so i find gene kind of unbearable at various times throughout it but 
I think that's interesting. I mean, I think that it, it what's interesting about X Factor and about Gene in X Factor, and particularly Gene's really unpleasant character traits in X Factor, is that what happened when she was dead was she became sanctified by all of them, and they would just all talk about how great Gene was all the time. Right, yeah. And that's what happens when people die, especially when they die tragically or when they die young, right? But even with, like, a grandparent, you'll see it, where suddenly they did nothing wrong ever in their life and everyone, you know. But what you don't usually get is the person coming back and calling that whole characterization into question. <laughs> right. Which I think is because really Jean interesting. Doesn't wanna, Jean doesn't want to be deified either. Like, that's a huge point Like right. with her. She's a character who's just like, no, <laughs> don't. Stop trying to make me be like your weird guru. You just don't understand me, you know? She loves power, but she wants to retain her humanity. That's sort of, I think, intrinsic to the character. Part of what I did like about the Morrison run was, to me, it was Jean accepting her destiny as a god. And she stopped letting... Okay, I appreciate Cyclops and Jean as a couple. I always have. I like them. But... You see through her life, like how much he his fear of her and like his trauma around the Phoenix really just like takes it out of her for like a long time after X Factor. Like, yeah, she's constantly she refuses to marry him down. for years. Yeah, because she's like, well, the problem, Scott, is that I remember you proposing to Phoenix and I remember you proposing to Madeline Pryor because I've absorbed yeah. all those memories now the idea of you proposing to me is making me aggy right now and eventually she proposes to him instead which is cute right but yeah I, I mean one of the things i loved most about the teen gene stuff under bendis was that the second that teen gene downloads an account of her future she's like you need to stay far away from me right yeah because part of the reason she never had a chance is because they get so caught up in that relationship a hundred percent. Yeah. And you see how it's kind of negative for both of them over a long time. But also that's what it's like, you know, whenever you have a person who you have maybe outgrown in a lot of ways, yeah. but like you're still just like clinging to them because you love them so much, you know, it's like there's I never question that those two love each oh, other. Oh, no, so they much. absolutely do. But I don't know that they're good together anymore no exactly that's it right. like they have to go in different directions and that's what i want to see more of because while it's been nice to see the summers as a family unit for the first time literally ever ever <laughs> and i really enjoyed that through dawn of x in reign of x yeah. i want to see a lot more difficulty there i want to see a lot more of gene i, I just i i am totally on board with gene saying you know what we've achieved everything and i'm going to be marvel girl again because that's when i was happiest and i'm going to do it even if she's like 35 and she wants to you know <laughs> which they'll never tell us but she is let's be honest yeah i think that's fun but i don't think their relationship makes sense and part of it is that we haven't seen a lot of it on the page yet without one of their kids present or without them being at an official function like i understand where scott and emma's relationship is yeah because I've seen that in the cable book, honestly. Like, they've had a couple scenes together that I think really underline where they're at. They are very friendly, healthy exes. Carlos Ramos wrote in to ask, is Emma involved in the Summers' polyamorous situation? Unclear. 
there was a sinister secret that sort of implied that Scott and Emma are still fucking, which I would kind of enjoy if Jean is with Wolverine. But the problem is I don't think Emma would ever be with Wolverine. So if you want it to be a like a polycule, I don't think Emma can really be involved in a deep level. <laughs> no. It makes more sense, honestly, for Cyclops and Wolverine to be together than it does for Cyclops and Jean to be together. It does. That's the thing. Yeah, it drives me kind of up the wall a little bit because I'm just like, you have been setting up this beautiful love story with these two. (laughs) You haven't done any work. Right. No work around Jean and Cyclops. I am loving this current run line-wide so much, but it is one thing that I do feel I want more of is I want to understand their relationship particularly again to bring it back to Madeline as I always do the conclusion of that first arc of Hellions which is brilliant yeah so good I don't know if we'll ever find out who voted what way or if we'll ever find out if Scott really did argue on Madeline's behalf or any of that I think all we're probably going to get is Scott telling Alex I tried you know but they didn't go for it Mm mm-hmm I feel like we could infer more about what actually happened if we knew more about Scott and Jean's relationship right now. Exactly. Yeah. And we don't. So that is just, I mean, listen, they're together in the Reign of X teaser. They clearly made a momentous decision at the end of Ten of Swords. I'm willing to wait and see, but I do agree that in the first year, Jean has been more of a supporting character and that their relationship has been really backgrounded in a way that, makes it difficult to understand where her head is at. Yeah, and it's just like, what what would make you want to get back with your ex? You know, it's like, it's kind of regressive behavior right. for a lot of the time. I mean, sometimes people get back with their exes in a way that works, but I just think it's really rare. And I don't see where either of them has really done the work to make that be a thing that happens. Um, they've just gone in like such different directions, right? Like there's... There's not a lot of unifying factors between them. Right. Their philosophies have really shifted. I think the idea is that Krakoa has chilled Scott out a little bit. Yeah, he's the chill dad. (laughs) But has also made Gene a little more radical as opposed to assimilationist. Sure. In the same way that Xavier has moved a little bit more towards separatism, obviously, with the very nature of Krakoa. Uh She has always been more on the assimilation train with Xavier and Hank, which is why I do think that her as Hank's conscience, which is hilarious that for Jean to be anyone's conscience <laughs> on X-Force works, I think that Krakoa has brought their philosophies more into alignment because while she was dead, Scott was radicalized. But I don't know. I just, he definitely, in part because I think that the way Morrison wrote the devolution of their marriage is a really good story. It is. And is really well done. It's hard for me to buy without the same amount of work put on the page that they're back together. It's hard for me to, exactly. to get it, you know? Yeah, or what do they stand again? Because we look at the background and once again, what brought them together? The fact that they were the two that were the most out of control and they most needed somebody. And like, that is why they like spent years and years and years just like clinging to each other because they were literally the only thing the other one had. Yeah. You know, it's like there's the greater X-Men and everything like that. But like without each other, like they didn't have any grounding like whatsoever. So like the fact that they they formed that incredible bond with each other. And then they both were just like, we're hurting each other by being together. Yeah. Like we are not growing we hold each at other all. Back. 
Yeah. And it's like that story is great. Like you say, it's great. And you're completely correct. Like, I loved that story Um, for her, too. Like, I loved it for both of them. I mean, I love when she's dying and she says, live, Scott. All I ever did was die. How tragic. People were like, Jean wouldn't say that. I'm like, yes, she would. Yes, she would. First of all, it's melodramatic in exactly the way she Yes. Died. Second she of all, that. it's, it's self <laughs> It's self-sanctifying in exactly the way she likes. Yeah, 100%. Because she's being the gracious one. Oh, of course, yeah. But also, it is true on some level. It is, yeah. You know, like, his whole life has been defined by the trauma around her deaths and rebirths. That and Mr. Sinister. And so has her resurrection. And her resurrections have all been about, like, how this affects Cyclops. Exactly. You know? So it's bad. It's not a good relationship anymore. And it's like, but what do we see when we see them interacting as friends? It's beautiful. Like, it's so beautiful to watch them be able to, like, look at each other and remember everything that was so Mm -hmm. good between them, you know, but then not choose to get back together. I think that that's such a better story. And like, you know, we're in the world of corporate comics and like, you know, cell phone companies owning companies that create art and stuff like that. So it's like kind of hard to be like. I want them to do this because it's better for the characters because overall they don't really care what's better for the characters. They care what's good for the the brand, right. The creators do. The creators, the writers and editors do, but there is a corporate apparatus that's above that. Right. So if they want Cyclops and Phoenix to be together, that's going to be what happens. (laughs) Right, but she can't be Phoenix. But she can't be Phoenix. You know, I just feel like there's, I don't know. And we'll never know exactly the nitty gritty of that, you know, of what they were told no about, what corporate has required like <laughs> in 30 years when they're like dishing yeah when they're the all old people <laughs> you know when they're all in their golden years chris claremont will tell you anything now he Louis will, Simonson yeah, will tell you anything it. now because they are <laughs> done removed enough from the situation and like jim shooter is not relevant chris claremont can talk all the shit he wants about jim shooter now 100 percent. so i'm sure someday we'll learn interesting things about because Given what an unprecedented rebrand this is and how much control they've given to Hickman, they clearly have a lot of faith in him and his vision. But I'm sure there are things that were stipulated. I mean, if they were allowed to, don't you think they would have turned the Maximoff twins back by now? I do. Seriously. I mean, that's like another retcon where you're just like, no, <laughs> there. Yeah. And it's one where I, I fully believe that they would have used Secret Wars to fix it, but they weren't allowed to. How do you how would you explain how Scarlet Witch, Lorna Dane and Magneto all wear the most epic capes I've ever seen if they were not related and that were not a trait that is <laughs> runs with the family? Well, as I said to Jordan White on his episode, like I don't understand all the references to the House of M now when it's just Eric and Lorna. I know. Eric barely knows Lorna. That's not a house. That's two people. That's two people. And <laughs> Lorna has so many, like, issues. And yeah, well, and Lorna also like... is just much closer to other people. Like, that's not... Yeah, like, 100%. It, it feels like House of M, the alternate reality, imprinted that idea in a lot of people's heads, I guess. And obviously, her traumatic response on Genosha. But she right. had sort of fully lost her mind there. I mean, it wasn't... They didn't actually have a close relationship. That's part of what she's distraught about in that issue. Yeah. Is that she finally found her father and then he apparently died immediately. Yeah. In a genocide. So like that's, yeah. I mean, but that's what I'm saying. It's like, I'm sure there are things like that or, you know, 
are they going to ever be able to say on panel that Cyclops and Wolverine are fucking? Probably not, right? Because no. Disney would have to <laughs> sign off on that. And I don't know that that's something they're going to do ever. But the way that Hickman talks about Gene in interviews leads me to believe that this is his design, that them being together is part of, like, it's not something that was given to them as a branding thing. You know what I mean? I'm interested to see where it goes because right now I also don't really get it. Yeah, exactly. Outside of the fun factor of the triangle, which is very fun. And the satisfying feeling of Nathan and Rachel being their kids and them all living together, which is very satisfying Mm -hmm. after all those decades of it never working. Other favorite storylines with Jean. Did you read X-Men season one? I thought that that was pretty good. It's not like essential. It's not essential. It's not something you have to read, but I thought it was good. If you like the idea of going back to the Silver Age stuff, but you don't want to read the actual 60s book, because let me be honest, it's not great. (laughs) I think X-Men season one is a great choice, particularly because narratively up through Dark Phoenix, once Claremont takes over, Jean is the protagonist of the story in a lot of ways. It's sort of about, and Scott is too, but it's about the two of them. And season one is very much like Jean in the protagonist's seat. Mm-hmm, yeah. Which is the way it should have been in the 60s stuff, but it isn't. Yeah, it's not uh, at all. And I thought, like, what, Trial of Phoenix was pretty good, too, right? Like, the... Yeah, I would. I was about to say, I would recommend the teen Jean stuff. That is the yeah. one teen character that I think it was really worth it. Totally. Especially because she was dead at the time when they first did it. yeah. So it was the only what, Where's When she's like, where's my older son? And they're like, oh, about that. Right. Uh, that's how everybody felt. I was like, oh, girl. <laughs> There's an incredible like, splash page that when she gets all of her memories. Yeah, I love that of, like, one. The memories she should have had. And you just see all of these panels of like the horrific shit that happened to Jean Grey. Over the yeah. Place. And you're yeah. just like, huh. Yeah. I would also be upset if I were 16 and I learned all of this and saw it. Yeah. in my brain because I can do that oh god and just seeing how much your life had nothing to do with you that would right. like drive you up the wall right. it'd be like so okay it was Xavier Scott Phoenix and none of my choices got it right <laughs> like, and I and rage. I do that's why I do understand x-factor gene yeah because x-factor gene like much as I I'm repulsed by the way she makes Maddie all about herself. Right. What Jean is doing in X Factor is asserting, no, it's about me now. Yeah. And that's not admirable necessarily, but it's very understandable. Well, what's the thing? Everybody always gives Cyclops so much leeway in that story where they're just like, yeah, he screwed up, but he's having all of this like complete mental collapse and everything. And it's like, yo, yeah, I don't give him any leeway from the dead. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I mean, it, yeah, it's hard to be a Madeline yeah. Stan and be like, oh, yeah, Cyclops had a point there. Yeah, no, it's, it's like, like fuck that guy. I don't think he did either, but I would say that, but like, people do. People do give him more grace as opposed yeah. to her when it's like, and whether or not, like, I believe Jean was the Phoenix and the Phoenix was Jean. But at that moment in the story, Jean doesn't believe that. And so yes. Jean is feeling very violated and wants yeah. to assert herself as a person. And I fully get that. Yeah. I just, again, in terms of regression, what I didn't like about Phoenix Resurrection was that the Morrison storyline to me was about her accepting that about oh herself. Oh my god. And it's it's like this, like, they, it, how, it's so obnoxious because you see somebody step in and not a bad writer necessarily or whatever, no, but like, but... It, you see them step in and like, there's this 
thing where it's like people think that you should just be if you just take control, then things will be fine. And like, that's what happens. in that is it's just Jean being like, oh, no, Phoenix, you won't define me. And it's just like, no, the entire point of the Phoenix is, is that Jean has very little control over it. She's always been refusing to be the Phoenix, but it's who she is. And if you wanted to tell a good story with her, you know, around the Phoenix now, the way that you would do that is by merging them. Yes. As we talked about a little bit earlier. But to me, it was totally just like, it's one of those scenes where it's just like, oh, women should just like stand up for themselves if they want equal rights or something. <laughs> and it's just like, no, that's just not how it works. Have you tried just asking it to Yeah, leave? people think that. I've had so many people say stuff like that to me where they're just like, oh, well, like women don't get paid as much, but they like don't ask for raises. And it's like, do you know what happens if you're a woman and you ask for a raise? Like, have you been a woman who's right. asked for a raise? <laughs> like, do you know what happens? It's like literally somebody just tells you all of the reasons that you're worthless and like you don't deserve it so like no I don't think that that's how this works and like to me it's like I know that that's like a little bit of a stretch or a projection but to me it's like you also wouldn't it would have been a lot more difficult if like I just feel like there's a lot of people who would have written that story in a way that didn't make it be that way right like where it's just like oh she's just gonna stand up for herself finally and no more of this phoenix this is an abusive relationship and i want out like it's just very yeah exactly i don't know to me it's very go girl give us nothing yeah 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 because i love here comes tomorrow Mm -hmm. i love gene in the white hot room yeah and i'm not opposed to the idea of bringing i mean like it's not what i would do but i'm not opposed to the idea if you love gene gray to bring gene gray back i'm the person who's always trying to tell people what I think should be done with Madeline Pryor. Talk about someone whose story has been told, right? I'm like, there's a new story you can tell. (laughs) So there's always a new story you can tell with any character, right? Yeah. But to me, the Morrison arc is so satisfying because it allows her to be so many things. And to bring her back only by taking that away from her, X-Factor style, again, it just doesn't do it for me. Yeah, what's the point? What is the point? That's kind of the thing. If you're going to bring her back after 15 years and she's just back where she was 17 years ago, I don't get it. Also, like, have you not been reading any feminist criticism? Because there's been like 35, <laughs> 45 years of people being books like, what is up with this the character? Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested in your sort of take generally on Dark Phoenix because I have made the argument on this podcast that I don't think it's a sexist story. I think there are elements of it that are sexist, but I think she has a lot of agency and I think that it's aged pretty well, actually. But as I said, when I argued that, I'm not a woman. So my opinion on this only goes (laughs) so far. I'd be interested in sort of your, I mean, obviously the sexual violence element of it has aged poorly. But did it? Because it's like, I mean, they don't explore it, really. So that's, I guess, what ages poorly, That's what ages poorly, is what I mean. I don't mean, like, I think if it were something that was explored, we've never dealt with the fact that Mastermind raped her repeatedly. Right. We've never dealt with or that. Or Emma's like complicity in that yeah. because there right. is like a whole setup. And to me, that's like if we're gonna talk about like Jean and Emma being kind of these like frenemies and stuff, like how are you gonna like discount that part? There's two great crimes of Emma's from that period that they've never grappled with because it's hard. Yeah. And one is that, and one is Firestar's horse. Butter rum. <laughs> I 
get why they're hesitant to do that. It's like with Magneto. You can't really grapple with 60s Magneto because he doesn't make sense. Right, yeah. Retrospectively. And those are things that Emma does that are difficult to reconcile with the character she became in the 90s and aughts. But I think it would be interesting to go there. I think it would be really interesting to have Emma and Jean talk about it and have Emma be like, listen, I'm going to level with you. I don't like talking about this because it makes me feel vulnerable. But I was really enamored with Shaw. Yeah. I was in love with him. And I don't know if they can say now. Morrison said, and I was addicted to drugs, but I don't know if they would let them say that now. Morrison got away with that. But this older man took me in when I was alone and made me feel special and made me his queen. And I did really terrible things. And it's not passing the buck, but I think there's a parallel that can be drawn between the way Shaw manipulated Emma and the way that Emma helped Mastermind manipulate Jean. You know what I'm saying? It's complicated. But I think it would be yeah, interesting to have them talk about That's it. That's what she sees. I mean, yeah. And this is like, this is the arena that we have to do it, right? Because in real life, you don't want to talk to that person ever. No, again, in real life, like... if someone helps someone, metaphorically speaking, drug and assault you. Yeah. Because it's like, it's telepathic illusions. But like, if we're going to go to the metaphor, right? Right, right. Which it's there. Yeah, like... oh, it's absolutely there then yeah no that woman is not someone you would ever talk to and that's why i said again like in new x-men gene has every reason to hate this woman but she goes too far you know like it's that gene crosses her own lines all the time to go after emma and it's okay with her because she feels that emma is without she has never it's like who would get over that right Right. why would you there's but there's no conversation that's the elephant in the room that they need to talk about and as an emma fan i would like them to because it's a thing that's hard to grapple with as someone who loves emma of course the fact that emma did that and that they that she's never really been held to account for it i think that it's a conversation they should have and like have a woman write it please dear god and have it be really real and about sexual violence and complicity in that and Emma's regrets. I think that would be interesting because they've reached a place now where it's clear that I think Jean has forgiven. Her, yeah. Which is why now it would be a good time for them to talk about it. Like new X-Men would not have been a good time to dredge that. <laughs> no. But no. now would be a good time for them to address, you know? Sure. And they can talk about like the things that Jean has done to Emma's mind over the years and how those were not great. Right. You know, because Jean really violates her. I mean, they violated each other essentially is what I'm saying. So I think that yeah. that's worth, and unlike her behavior, like unlike Emma's behavior in Inhumans versus X-Men, which I like that they're just not going to deal with because it was just crazy town. <laughs> yeah, This yeah. is something you have to deal with because it's the genesis of the character. I mean, that's Emma's first appearance is in Dark Phoenix. Yeah. So that's how we're introduced to her is that she helps these men do this to this woman. Yeah. And also that Kate has gotten to deal with Emma a little bit more, right? Like we've gotten to see, because there's that first story where Kate is being literally kidnapped by the White Queen. Yeah, that's also where that character is introduced. Yeah. So the three of them are all linked in that story. But Jean gets left out of this like catharsis. Yeah. um, Which I think is important. It's another way that I think Jean has been not as foregrounded in this era as she could be, is that we haven't seen a lot of her and other women. And I think that her and Emma and her and Storm, outside of those giant size issues, right, which are great. They're great, yeah. But I think those two relationships are really important 
And it would be nice to see more of that teased out. Yeah, people always forget about Jean and Storm. And I think that that's like, honestly, one of the most important relationships in X-Men. Like after, you know, we see uh, Jean die in the Phoenix Saga, there's that, um, what is it, Rogue Storm story where she goes and is manipulated by Arcade and Doctor Doom. And then she starts to go wild. Like she starts like getting really scary and kind of going like terrifying Phoenix version of herself. And what happens is she looks at Nightcrawler and Colossus and she remembers Jean and because she loves Jean so much, she can't do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was like Storm and Jean had such a profound friendship that we really never got to see be developed. But like in that moment, I saw all of this background that just was never even on the page. Right. So it's like you see this like wonderful connection between them and you understand their friendship so much all of a sudden because it's just like Storm misses jeans so, so badly. much one yeah. of the best scenes in inferno which for all that i you know talk about my issues with gene in it it's one of the best gene stories and it's one of yeah. claremont's very best stories and one of the best scenes in it is the scene where storm and gene reunite i know yeah that is like honestly the thing that kind of brings gene back in a way yeah it's what makes gene realize she's been behaving strangely actually Because I think after Inferno, she gets her shit together to some extent. And in part, it's because, how could I have rejected the X-Men? Aurora leads the X-Men. Yeah, like, she remembers everything, kind of. And similarly, the scene in Australia, where Aurora sees X-Factor on TV and, like, flies at supersonic speed across their base and knocks Wolverine on his ass. Like, you must have Because he didn't tell her. You didn't tell me. yeah. And he's like, I thought I was crazy, but yeah, I didn't tell you. And she's like, how could you not fucking tell me? Yeah. She's my best friend. Yeah. And she, it changed her life in this way that I think like we always focus once again on how it changed Cyclops's life, but Storm's entire character trajectory after Jean's Shifts death completely. is so fascinating. Yeah. Well, she becomes the protagonist. It's really fascinating, actually. It is. I love it. Cyclops goes off stage and Storm becomes the main character of the book. So good. It's so good. She really does. so good. (laughs) That's my favorite. Yeah, I love it. And that's, I mean, it's like a lot of people go, well, like, yeah, it was like after she met up with Yukio in Japan. And I'm like, yeah, definitely. But it's also been building ever since Dark Phoenix that she doesn't. Exactly. The stuff with Callisto and the Morlocks, that doesn't happen without Dark Phoenix. Of course, yeah. I agree with that 100%. Storm leaves her tribe in the Serengeti and comes to the West, where she was born but hasn't been since she was an Right. And Jean is the one who helps her acclimate to, like, America. I know. The, okay, so, like, that Which issue, is, I think it's Uncanny It's uncanny know. X-Men, like, 98 or something. Yeah. Where, like, they, they're they going to go Christmas shopping, and uh, Jean walks up on Storm and Cyclops, and they're both, like, frowning. <laughs> and she's just like, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> to me, I loved that so much. I was just like, Jean rules. Like, that's, like, one of those moments so from, that, from that lead-up, right? Yeah. Where it's just like... That too, because you didn't see them become friends at all, but like that panel. Right, we're just told that they're best friends, but then you get little moments where you're like, I buy. It. Yeah, because she like will not let Storm take herself too seriously. No, and I think she that makes that's Storm laugh. So important. And for so her. few people do that. It's like her and Kurt. I love it. And Colossus sometimes. Yeah. And eventually.
eventually Wolverine, but it takes a lot of character growth for Wolverine before they get to that point. <laughs> she's, mad. <laughs> she's mad at him for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> just annoyed, kind of. Well, Not she's really just mad. Like, but... He's just a bad dog who won't behave for a long time. Right. And understandable, because if I had to sit through meetings with Wolverine, just being like, yeah, no, please. like stopping everything from getting accomplished and just arguing with everybody, like <laughs> I would be done. Um, So you asked a minute ago about what my thoughts on is Dark Phoenix a sexist story? Um, Well, more your thoughts in general. I don't want to make you like, hello, woman, just like, you know, tell me yeah. what you think about this story. But I would be interested in your take because I know how invested you are in this character. And when I was having that conversation, the other guest was also a man. So I was like, of course, we aren't really qualified to assess this. Sure. Well, I think that there are sexist elements to that story. And I also think that it's highly reductive to refer to that entire arc as being sexist because Chris Claremont is somebody who constantly listened, right? Like if he did nothing else, he listened to women. And so, you know, he's the person, his history with Carol Danvers would be more of yes. an example of him turning a character around because he read Carol Strickland's yes. essay on the rape of Miss Mergle. Incredible essay. Yes. Um. Yeah, exactly. Like all of the horrible things that happened to her. And he was just like, wow, yeah, she's traumatized. I guess that's true. And fuck <laughs> like, the Avengers for, for treating her that way. I'm going to put oh that God, on the page. Yeah. I mean, it really is a remarkable yeah. issue when she tells them all to fuck off, especially Wanda, because Wanda's a woman and should have known better. And Wanda, and that is what makes all of their interactions going forward so, so interesting, yeah. because I think that that's a thing, right? Like, it's a thing that never really goes away between them. No. And I think that that's... And, and they're still friends, though. Like, there's something very right. interesting about that. Like, I think that... Uh, trying to trying to hold Wanda accountable for basically anything is not easy. Well, that's the thing is Wanda's hard to hold to account because she's just yeah. crazy half the time, which is its sure. own problem. But of course, a hundred percent. Yeah, I don't disagree. I like that's the thing is what with Dark Phoenix and I. I think I said this in that conversation. What I think happened with Dark Phoenix is that it was imitated many times with other female characters and that many of those stories were incredibly sexist, including like almost everything that's ever been done with the Scarlet Witch. A hundred percent. So I think it has cast a pall along with things like, I love that 90s animated series, but Jean Grey is not great in it. So she has her issues. Yeah. yeah so I would know. say you have... Um... Yeah, you see her develop for the first time. That's kind of the important thing, right? Whenever we do the lead up and we make it all the way to the Dark Phoenix. Now, if you look at the Dark Phoenix in a void and you only read that story, then yeah, of course, you're going to find some issues with the fact that there is a woman who becomes too powerful and then she loses it and all of this stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's issues with that. Absolutely. And we can call that into question all day long, because I do think that those stereotypes really affect Jean, you know, mm -hmm. like that's something that has been an issue many many times and even in you know the films or something where it's just like she's just phoenix or whatever you know it's like to me that's like once again it's almost like the stories that came after make it like a little bit worse so i think that when we talk about that story it is always important to talk about what came before it and why there was like this lead-in that was gene breathing for the first time and like gene stepping into power and becoming a character for the first yeah. time and just having all of this complexity and then it kind of fizzles in a way because it's like yeah it does suck that they kill her and also the the alternative i've like read interviews and i'm gonna say like the alternative where they just had brainwashed uh gene and like a 
straight jacket or whatever. That was not great. No. Um, and like that never took place on the page, but that was like one of their ideas, I think. For but even the alternate version where her powers get taken away and she just has to live with it, I don't love that either. I don't love that. No, I I think killing her is the best option of the three. Uh, I don't know. It's like I think <laughs> that like we can we can find our way out of it once Jabari has happened. You know what I sure, mean? Sure, yeah. But that was also like, what was that? Like a total accident. Like that was kind of a thing where Byrne was like, I'm doing this. Right. And like, wasn't that the deal of that? So Issues with the Marvel method. Right. <laughs> so like, that's fine, you know, whatever. But like, it's definitely, and it's hard to talk about this of like, what should they have done? Right, because it's so much canon that it's like. They did it before either of us were born. I read that story when I was like 10 years Same. old. Like, I don't know what my understanding of stories is without like the Dark Phoenix in it, you know? So It's so intrinsic to how I approach art generally. So, yeah, we talk about it and we can say, yeah, there's some sexist elements to it. You know, of course there are. It's also the first time that Jean ever stepped into power. Claremont was doing what he could to flesh her out a little bit. And I think that all of those things are true. And then I think that what makes people so cringy about it once again is is that like where we were at in the time it might not have been such a glaring obvious mistake not to have the woman like collapse under her own power um but like how that hasn't necessarily been corrected because we've been talking about this entire you know her entire trajectory and we're still having issues with like how jean's being you know characterized that's still her storyline right yeah yeah. And so like there's problems. Right. And it's not necessarily something that can be defined simply within that story. So when somebody's like Dark Phoenix is sexist, I'm like, yes, but it's a lot of things. And like there's things that like, you know, I would say like if somebody was just like it's not sexist, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Like it's there's parts of it that aren't, you know, yeah. like it's it. both things can be true. It's really far removed from where we're at right now. But then we see the effects of it. And that's kind of what becomes infuriating, I think, for people is, is that like over time we haven't corrected these mistakes. And that's right. why, you know, you look back and you're just like, what the heck is this? <laughs> like, Well, right. Because when you look at because House of M with Wanda, I think is enormous. Oh, it's super is. The way that they treat Wanda is terrible. The storyline with Raven in the Wolf and Perez Teen Titans, which is so explicitly bad. a ripoff of the Dark Phoenix saga, is enormously sexist. And so sexualized. Yeah. Like, so sexualized. And in a way that, like... Yeah, it's not comfortable. I read a lot of those comics as a teen girl, you know, and was just like... Yeah, and I mean, like, Wolfman was very openly chasing the Claremont yeah. high. I mean, that's what that book was. Yeah. And that storyline is just Dark Phoenix, except Raven has no agency in it, and it's unsexualized in a way that's unpleasant. She is regularly stripped of her clothes and made to suffer and tortured and, like, all of this stuff, and you're just like, yo, dude. Like, yo, my I guy. <laughs> well, and of course, like, you know. It's surrounded by all of this Let's other... not even get into the Judas Contract, which, again, the Judas Contract is a great story. Yeah. You look back at it Fuck. You really failed Tara, you know? And like, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of problems. I mean, and I think that character is fascinating. And I like that she's just evil in that story. But also the way that she was exploited is never acknowledged. I, anyway, that's a whole, we'll be here for four hours if we start talking about it. I wrote an article. <laughs> well, I think everyone should read it. I'm sure it's amazing. I will go read it as soon as we're done talking. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I was just talking about that story with someone because I was like, that's a dicey one where... I think it's oh, really yeah. great, but also yikes. Very yikes. Very yikes. Matt Hatcher writes, Hi, Connor. I love the podcast. I've been waiting on the Jean Grey episode. I have a couple comments or questions. Jean Grey is a very compelling character. I've been in the online XM community for nearly 20 years, and I've come to know many LGBT fans of Jean Grey, especially gay men. 
I've identified with Jean for her empathy and compassion, but also always saw Jean's Phoenix aspect as an important part of her identity, expression, and authentic self. Seeing the version of the Phoenix that was used by Matt Rosenberg during Phoenix Resurrection was hurtful, to say the least. The Phoenix was used as a cosmic trickster or manipulator rather than an actual intimate aspect of Jean Grey. And I was wondering if you could speak to this, if you agree or disagree with my assertions. Another, Jean Grey's main themes as a character involve her relationships, romantic and professional, her growing psychic powers, and her connection or involvement with the Phoenix. What do you think are her most important themes? And how do you think the character can continue to evolve? Can she be defined in other ways? And lastly, Jean Grey's history can be very confusing and convoluted, mainly due to retcons. Fans aren't sure if Jean was in the Dark Phoenix saga or not. There's fan confusion about Jean and Here Comes Tomorrow. Being a fan of Jean Grey can be rough because some of her defining moments are stripped from the character. And I wonder if you can both speak to this confusion and if you feel this has had an effect on the character's trajectory in the books. So there's a lot there. And some of it is stuff we've touched on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. Do you want to take it away on any of that? Yeah, I mean, well, I guess the last one is uh, the the way that they strip her autonomy is a big, big problem with this character. Yeah. And that when we see what are her defining traits and themes, I would um, I would hope it would be emerging with the Phoenix. I don't think that that is what we are left with on the page. At this point, I don't think we're going to get that because yeah. if they were going to do it, they would have just brought her back that Forever ago. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so, okay. But I agree. That's where I would want to take her is enough of that. I am the Phoenix. We're moving on. Jean's best moments and themes outside of that, I would say, are the moments whenever she goes, I'm doing what I'm doing. And like, I don't care anymore. And I think that that's, you know, we see that a lot in the lead up to Dark Phoenix. We see that, you know, in Grant Morrison's X-Men as well. And those are those those are her best moments. Like those are the moments where she's just I love how she kind of ignores Professor X whenever he has Sabretooth in the mansion because she's just like, I see the danger. I see your point. But like, you're wrong about this. You're wrong. And you're wrong because of my compassion. Like you are wrong because you're showing compassion to this guy. Who doesn't deserve your compassion. That's actually, honestly, to go back, that's why I buy her putting Sabretooth in the pit. Actually. See, that's why I didn't, because like the way that she responded to him there was to just go beat him up and to like look into his mind, because what was the deal there? Like Xavier was trying so hard to rehabilitate right. him and he was lying like mentally, like he was just like, yeah, of course, like unicorns and stuff. I just could see her finally just being like enough with this guy. That just felt very cheap to sure. me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can see it. I, you could go either way on it. I feel like she would probably have just bucked against like all of what everybody was saying at that table. Well, that's the bigger issue, right? Yeah. But, you know, okay, sure. Yeah, if Sabretooth is hella annoying, he's terrible. He's attacked a lot of people. He makes the young girls very uncomfortable. Well, he is, to go back to like the sexual violence aspect, I mean, that character when he's introduced is very much like rape as a character. Yeah. Like that's the threat 100%. of him. When he chases Psylocke through the mansion, that's what that is. The backstory that's revealed with him in Wolverine is that he raped and murdered Wolverine's girlfriend. I mean, that is his yeah. thing when he's introduced. Yeah. So I, it's intrinsic 100%. to the character. And personally, I'm thrilled he's in the pit. I mean, I don't believe in sure. that as like a real world carceral measure. No. But I am glad to have him not on the page because he makes me uncomfortable, frankly. Yes, of course. But I think that that's also where like the X-Men yeah. fails in yeah. some ways is to address those themes because it brings them up. And then it right. just, it's like, like, well, then address it. Right. Rather than putting him off the page where we don't have to think about it. Yeah. Not thinking about Sabretooth is great, though. So it's I'm not been enjoyable. So I'm much. not mad. About it, <laughs> frankly. Sure. 
Yeah. And then um, before that, it was basically like talking about the Jean Grey queer fandom, right? yeah. which is a huge thing. And how important the Phoenix is to that specifically. The Phoenix is hugely important to it because I you were mentioning that article that I wrote where I interviewed a few different Phoenix fans mm-hmm. that were queer. Basically, just that like we talked a little bit about how the Phoenix is the most important part of that, because a lot of times Jean is written as a straight character. Right. Uh, I would say predominantly as a straight character. I read Jean as pretty queer, honestly, but like Love that I for you. see why I do. I'm, yeah, I'm like a lesbian. Right. Of course I do. I, I encourage everyone to have whatever queer, gay, bisexual, whatever headcanons about the X-Men because I think that's what the X-Men are for. Yeah. So even if I don't see it, I fully support it. I think that maybe she wasn't for a while. It wasn't something that really like crossed my mind, but at a certain point she just got treated too badly by like by heteronormative yeah. <laughs> stories. And yeah. so I was like, oh, you know what I think? You know what? Just go fuck Storm. Go fuck Storm. That was like basically <laughs> what everybody's conclusion was in that article was yeah. like, we love their friendship. If they hooked up, that would be great. But it's, you know, never going to happen. But Well, I'm definitely part of the WLW Storm agenda. Yes. So, you know, again, I don't think they'd ever let her be with Jean, but I would love to see Storm. You know what? I think that Storm's happiest place would probably be like Yukio, Jean, and maybe like Forge sometimes. And Callisto in the mix. And Callisto, you're right. I can't ignore that. I'm a Storm Callisto OTP kind of guy. So that's just of me. course, they have so much chemistry. So much chemistry, even when they were <laughs> trying to kill each other. Even especially, perhaps almost. especially um, <laughs> when they were trying to kill each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would say that the phoenix is the biggest part because that's it, right? It's, there's a power in you that everyone wants to take away from you, and that is intrinsic to you and is part of you. It's sort of the X Men metaphor writ large, right? Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, and uh, just the idea that like I, it it almost becomes her kind of being closeted that like she can't embrace that part of herself right so it's like that's where i see the metaphor yeah is taking the phoenix away from Jean that much different from taking away franklin richards's powers we don't have to get into it i'm just offering that as a thought experiment sure because i think it's similarly troubling it's different because the phoenix has been since 1986 divorced from the mutant aspect because it's this external cosmic thing right but as the story was originally told when she's on Muir Island and Moira's examining her it's just that the cosmic rays supercharged your mutation it's part of her mutant power everything else is a retcon (laughs) yeah so there is something distressing both on the like actualized female character level and on the queer metaphor of the x-men level to saying Yes, Jean is the white phoenix of the crown, but that's bad and she should reject it. Yeah. I don't care for it. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) That's my take. I completely agree. I don't care for it. (laughs) Yeah, I think it'll just be better for her when she can embrace that part of herself. I have hope because of the mention in House of X that one of the only things that can stop a Dominion is the phoenix and the fact that Jean is in the Marvel Girl costume. I think it's possible that that's part of where Hickman's going in the very end game. But I don't think we're going to get there for a long time because right now the Phoenix is dicking around with the Avengers. So it's going to be a minute. Oh, God, yeah. To kind of compound on Jean and her importance, I think, to queer people, we almost can't neglect Rachel, right? Because yes. Rachel is this character who does merge with the Phoenix and then doesn't anymore. Yeah, <laughs> It's kind of the same thing, right? 
Well, and what's interesting about Rachel is that Rachel in the 80s is a very gay character. So gay. Rachel's a lesbian in the 80s. She just is. The Franklin stuff is the one discordant note, frankly. It just, no, not even, right? Because, like, who didn't date somebody who was... Right. You buy it because they grew up together. It's very dating Polaris to me. Do you know what I mean? I dated dudes, you know? <laughs> like Yeah, like, it happens, right? Actually, Rachel dating Kurt is extremely Bobby dating Polaris to me. Oh, my God, yeah. It was so that gay. Was it just like and felt, just felt like you're gay, though. Like, just... It made it so glaring because it was, like... Because it's like, this is a lesbian. Rachel has no interest. No. It's like the whole time. I am I get it because I'm just like, I'm starting to see kind of like a pirate thing that like Rachel's into. But like. Right. Because <laughs> um, you see Kate, Kate come back and you're right. just like, you're like, whoo. <laughs> but I think the Phoenix thing, I mean, if we really want to dig in, Rachel is this very actualized, pretty lesbian character in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And then she goes away. And dies as Mother Iscani in the future. Which is so lesbian, right? Yeah. Like, that whole story. Mother Iscani like... is about as gay. Like, she becomes Sappho. Yeah. Like, she creates a commune of women who only live with other women and do mystical. And then she's betrayed by one of and them. And then is betrayed <laughs> by her confidant, who is clearly her girlfriend. Like, it's very, yes. it's a very Judas Kiss thing. Yeah. And then Claremont brings her back without the phoenix and she's weirdly not gay anymore she is in the scene well it's like whenever they first come back in extreme x-men she's pretty fucking yes. gay right but i mean she's just uncanny. like she's like touching like kate yeah like, but i mean uncanny when she becomes like, marvel girl and you're just like yes Right before that, there's that scene where uh, Colossus comes back from the dead and Rachel's response is, so you're not going to sleep in my bed anymore <laughs> or whatever to Kate. And I was like, whoa. whoa! Um, and like, to me, that was like, they're out, you know, like that's. Well, yeah. I and mean, we know that that was always Claremont's intention was that Kitty and Rachel were supposed to be together. Yes. One of my many X-Men OTPs, but yeah, I, I'm a long I'm, running one. I find myself more into Kitty and Ileana, but I feel like in terms of the far end game, like Rachel and Kitty are who should end up together. I just feel like right now, Rachel should be just lighting them up. I am not mad either way. <laughs> like I want Rachel to be fully out as a character and just like the lesbian stud of Krakoa. I kind of want her to date Lorna. <laughs> I would love that. Well, I really want her to date Betsy, actually. Ooh, yeah, I like that That's too. What I want. Um, gay, gay, gay. <laughs> yeah, I want it all to be gay. I love it. I also like kind of want Betsy to date Kanon. Because that would be crazy, right? <laughs> that would be wild. It really would be. I'm just like, you know what would help you guys work out all of this weird stuff? Why don't you just, I don't know, make out you could just have sex a bunch um and it would probably be better for you you're both very familiar with each other's bodies already and we (laughs) very familiar we just saw (laughs) we just saw um you know her phantom x and cluster right it's not just one thing with her so i think that like yeah she's always like really interested in these kind of what (laughs) you know for me maybe i wouldn't date the person whose body i lived in (laughs) for like 10 years or whatever but but betsy would i think it would be funny if they hooked up i mean my thing is when you were talking about dean and emma and how you don't think there are many relationships that are as interesting my first thought was like it hasn't been allowed to because Colin was mostly dead 
But yeah. the potential with Betsy and Conan is to me absolutely fascinating. So good. I can't wait to see where that oh, goes. Oh, yeah. Because Conan has become one of the top tier characters in Dawn of X. Like she is absolutely so awesome in Hellions. And I love, I know that the Captain Britain stuff is not everybody's thing, but I love what Teeny's doing with Betsy. So Same. I'm just very excited to see them interact more in the future. But to go back to Rachel for a moment. Yeah. I, I just like, I've speculated before that Claremont wanted to use Kate and couldn't. And so used Rachel instead in that uncanny run because mm-hmm. Kate was with Whedon at that point. Because it feels much more like stories for Kate, except for, like, the only times it really feels like Rachel are the gay parts. (laughs) Yeah. For example, End of Grey's, when Elaine Grey rejects her. Oh, yeah. Like, that's a very queer storyline. It is. Like, your whole family just got eradicated before they ever accepted you. Hmm. Yeah. Too bad, so sad. Yeah, very queer. Yeah. She's so queer in that story. I know, yeah. yeah. But then it's like, but then there's like weird stuff where like she has all these male love interests. I'm just like, I don't buy this. But that's very Claremont yeah. right? Like, I feel like with Claremont, they're never lesbians. It's always bi, yeah, 100%. Yeah. So that's just a thing where I'm like, okay, but Rachel should just be a lesbian. She's just gay. I feel that way about Ileana too, frankly. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, to me, I like sometimes read like, yeah, with Ileana, I would say like non-binary. Oh, sure. Like, There's lots of places asexual, you can go But like certainly, certainly lesbian, you know, like. Yeah, I uh, would even buy Ileana as like a bisexual who is turned off by men because she can't stand them. Yeah, fair. Totally. And so it's only like into women. If we really want to get like granular with all the variations in the spectrum of human sexuality. Sure. But yeah, no, to me, like the two characters who feel like affirmatively lesbian in the X-Men are Rachel and, and Ileana, to me. Rachel is the character that I probably relate to the most in the X-Men, which is always weird, but true. And I would say that a lot of that has to do with the fact that she has this really kind of confused sexuality that happens yeah. on the page. And we're kind of following along with it because like, what was that goofy stuff with like Corvus? Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> You see them hook up and like the way even that it happens is like her just being like, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like... And I love in X-Men Red when Jean's like, you could have told me, Kurt, that you dated Rachel. Yeah. And Kurt's just like, oh, well, I thought it might be weird. And all I could think was, it was weird. It was weird, <laughs> but uh, she was gay the whole time. Gay. So yeah, that was a little weird. She was gay. Kurt was denying his desire to be with his foster sister. They've both got weird stuff going on. So, you know. Yeah, totally. That's what that all felt like because the whole time he was like trying to be there for her, but he kept like kind of being like, go wait in the plane. Like that was one of my least favorite parts of X-Men Resurrection was is that Rachel was just down for the count the whole yeah. time. I was just like, are you serious? Yeah. And it was totally like him being like, maybe you'd better go get some rest. And she's like, I guess I'm just so confused. And it's like, yeah, because you're dating a dude. Yeah, because like... yeah, you, you really do need some like you have a headache. For the rest of that relationship. <laughs> so on that note, Gary from Dublin writes, Team Maddie forever. Hi. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you had me at hello. Yes. What do you think of the Jean-Rachel relationship? I live for the day that Rachel takes Jean to a lesbian bar and watches her get white girl wasted. <laughs> I also live for that and would like to see it. <laughs> Good one. That was great. <laughs> I want, I still want Homo Superior, the gay bar of Krakoa to exist. I want Christian Frost to oh set that God. up and I want Wednesday to be ladies night. Oh. Um, but I don't believe that Jean would consider Rachel her daughter as Rachel is only a few years younger than her. 
She didn't give birth to her and did not raise her. I feel that Jean would accept Rachel's truth and consider her undefined family, like a cousin or sister, especially now that all the other greys are dead. But I don't think Jean would answer to mom from her. Thoughts? Oh, yeah. I think that that was true. But I think that since Jean came back in Resurrection and X-Men Red, she has taken on a much more explicitly maternal role with Rachel. Mm-hmm. In terms of Rachel only being a few years younger than her, I actually don't agree with that. In the 80s, Rachel is explicitly a teenager. We can talk about the sliding time scale all we want, but by that point, Jean is 25. Right. So I think Rachel is actually significantly younger than Jean, but certainly too old to be Jean's natural born daughter. Sure. This goes back to our sort of desire, I think, to see more and understand more of where Jean's head is at on Krakoa, because she seems very comfortable in a maternal role with Nathan and Rachel right now. Sure, yeah. And I think that's new. Yeah. And I'd like to know more of her thoughts on that. I'd like to see more of that. It's not totally new, but you are correct. I think in Red, it's there. It's absolutely there in X-Men Red. And that was one thing I really did Before like. Before that too, though, like in, in X-Factor, there was uh, her spending time with Nathan as a baby. Oh, with Nathan, yes. I met with Rachel specifically. Like, I think that that's newer. Yes, but there is that story uh, in Excalibur yes. where she comes to talk to Rachel, mm-hmm. right? And she says, you know, she uh, what happens is Jean goes in in an adversarial way and is just like, you don't like me very much. And Rachel is just like, I love you. (laughs) You are my mom. Like, you are, like, everything that I just lost, you know? And, like, I also loved the idea of Phoenix being the person who is Rachel's dad more than I appreciated, like, Cyclops as, like, Rachel's dad. That's clearly Claremont's intention is that it was, like, a parthenogenic thing. Which I love. I mean... I love that. Because that's the queerest, like, way to bring... It's like, come on. It is. And it really leads beautifully into Mother Ascani. Right? Yes. Where it's I like, love we it. don't need men. I was born of a virgin. Not really, but you get what I'm saying. I love it so much. Yeah. The thing is just, I love the way Paul Smith draws Rachel in those early appearances as so clearly Scott's daughter. Yeah. Well, like, and she loves Scott. Like, if it was Phoenix that impregnated herself, maybe it was with the thought, this will be my child with Scott. Like, you know, so she looks well, kind of like Scott. Either way, he raised And either way, he is so, her dad. Like, right, obviously. Like, Yeah, but I just loved the way that in Paul Smith's artwork in particular, you could see the way that she was, she looks more, she's a redhead, but she looks like Scott. I really love that. Uh I think that's cool. Yeah, I love it too. But like, that's something that can easily be explained, right? Yeah. (laughs) Which like, I mean, yeah, I love that. And I love, I love her feelings towards Scott too. I think that they've gotten explored a lot more than her feelings towards Jean. Um. And then I liked that Jean had to be disarmed in that way by Rachel. Mm-hmm. Like, Rachel is the adult in that situation. Like, Jean comes in um, in a way that, like, I don't think is constructive at all to furthering a dialogue between the two. And Rachel is just, like, so vulnerable to her. And I think that that's what we lose with Rachel all of the time is, is like, that raw vulnerability that she's so capable of just you know just having you know it's like all of the x-men are trying to be tough all of the time and i think that rachel's the one who's just like i'm just gonna cry (laughs) like this is sad as much as bad things have happened to gene like to say the least none of it really compares to the bad things that have happened to rachel yeah and so i think rachel can sort of put it in perspective like okay but like were you an enslaved hound 
do you come from the dystopian mutant holocaust future? Like, relax, mom, maybe. Rachel is Jean's queer self. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's what I think about their relationship. I want to see more of it all of the time. I love those two. And I think that it, it she's another character that bounces off of Jean really well, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. And I that was one thing I really did love about X-Men Red, was I loved the way that she was so protective of Rachel and was sort of like, get your hands off my daughter. Very specifically. Yeah. Even if it's like weird and she didn't raise her and it's complicated, like just claiming Rachel because all Rachel wants really is to have a family, right? I swear to God. I know. It's so sad. That's why I love her so much. Yeah, she's so good. Rachel's so good. Finally, back to herself again after like when she came back and I felt like she wasn't herself. It took a long time. What was, I mean, I I felt like that that look between her and Kate was like one of the most electrifying moments because it's like you have, it was very we were sexy. just talking about all of the years that we have watched her be dating dudes and there is no spark of chemistry none, whatsoever. None. And, and then those two look at each Rachel, other. You're like, fuck. You guys just like. And Kate's just like, oh, Rachel. Like she's just like, you're so hot. And Rachel's got her pixie cut oh my God, and yeah. is in the X-Factor trench coat, which looks great on Rachel in particular. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan. <sighs> Sigh, Rachel. Sam Gladstone writes, do you think we will ever see the return of Jean's psychic hammer or weird psychic form from Bendis's run? Or will it just be an IVX situation where we quietly sweep it away? Sigh. Also, what is your favorite Jean outfit? Hmm. I would love it if we could see Jean be experimenting with her powers again that was one of the best things that came out of that arc mm -hmm. i think we did talk about that a little bit earlier yeah. was the fact that she got to explore her power set which we never see and like have never seen um so that was like to me that was like watering a dry plant or something like i was just like yes <laughs> like should we actually are starting to see like where her parameters are right yeah, and I think it would be a good way to differentiate her. The problem that Jean has is when she's not the Phoenix, she's just one of a million telepaths, even if she's the strongest one. Right. And so if she's not going to be the Phoenix, giving her some distinctive non-Phoenix things would be smart. Yeah, I mean, come on. You know? <laughs> like, you can't have it both ways. Or I guess they can, because that's what they've been trying to do for a really long time. But it would work better if you didn't. <laughs> As for my favorite Jean outfit, I love the Morrison New X-Men look on Jean a lot. I think it's an incredible look on her. Yeah, it looks so good on her. After that, Phoenix is her best costume. And unfortunately, it is tied up in a lot of baggage. So she doesn't wear it very often. Fair enough. I like the red X-Factor uniform. Mm -hmm. And I do like the Marvel Girl mini dress look a lot. And I'm into what they're doing with it right now. I just, we do need to get deeper into her head for me to fully be on board. Yeah, to me, it's kind of out of context. I'm like, yeah, it looks great, like, in the 60s. I don't know. Well, I like the visual strangeness of it, is it's like, sure. you know, because for her, she designed that outfit, like, 15 years ago. You know what I mean? Right. And to us, it was 60 years ago, almost. So it's just one of yeah. those things that's interesting. But I want more understanding of where her head's at. Yeah. 
I like all of the Jean outfits, honestly. I haven't really not liked... You like the Jim Lee outfit. Which a lot of people hate. Yeah, I've taken some flack for that one. But I like it. I don't know. It defined a lot of what her character was for mm-hmm. me at the time. Like, I didn't know a lot about the comics um, as a little, little kid. Um, I like her uh, all of the time. Like, I, <laughs> there was that 90s that nineties outfit that's, like, brown and gold and uh, red. Yeah. And, like, it has kind of, like, a headband or something. I think that that one rules. Like, she barely had that one, but it was cool. And, like, everybody else was sporting some kind of goofy costumes at that time. So I liked that one. I will also say... My favorite Gina outfits actually are her non-costume looks from the 70s when she was oh, totally. so fashionable. Yeah. So fashionable. I know. And then yeah, that goes like, away. I made a joke on Twitter just like... yesterday that like Maddie got all the fashion sense because <laughs> post-Inferno, Jean is not well-dressed. But in the 70s, yeah. she really was quite the fashion plate. She was. Yeah, I think she kind of comes and goes on that. But I also, I don't know. It's one of those things where I'm like, I like Jean the whole time, so I like her outfits. I mm-hmm. like how they all kind of have this different feel and different time for her and, like, all of that, which is why I feel like it's kind of jarring to see, like, the old, old costume, you know, currently. Because to me, I'm like, that helps me place her, right? <laughs> you know, on her long timeline. Well, I think it's supposed to disorient us, though. I think that is the point of it. You know what I mean? But sure. I, But it has been a yeah. year now, and I'm like, okay... We're disoriented. Orient us a little. <laughs> yeah. The thing with Jean is, is that like you have to sit in, settle in for the arc, right? So there's like no Jean Grey fans for the most part who are just like, yes, I love Jean in everything, right? Like it's basically just like there's whole dormant periods of X-Men for Jean, you know, where you're just kind of like, well, no Jean. <laughs> or like Jean wasn't too great in this one or whatever. Like Jean was poorly written, whatever, whatever. Listen, I embrace Emma horse murder and all. Like you have to just, yeah, totally. you know, be on board or not be on you board. You settle in. You're just like, you know what? I'm going to sit here. I'm going to read a bunch of Emma stories. Some of them I'm going to like. Some I'm going to criticize. That's how it is with Jean. I think particularly with the women. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I think because there's such a long history with every one of the main female characters where some of their stories are just real bad in a way that the male characters. Yeah. I mean, the male characters have stories that are bad, but it rarely has as many implications as some of the bad stories about the women have, I guess. Yeah, or like as so much out of character yeah. actions, right? So you do have to, I mean, and my favorites, I loved Storm so much as a kid, but I do feel like after Claremont, she kind of falls off in a way that's Oh, of course. Yeah, people really struggled with her for a yeah, long I think a lot time. Of people that's why know like Vita Yella's issue was yeah. so good, yeah. right? It's so good. God, it's so good. It was so good. Oh my God. Her aside, it really has always been for me in terms of like X-Men, Betsy and Emma and Lorna actually and those are three mm-hmm. characters where you really have to take it all yep. or not at all <laughs> like those are characters who are messy which is part of why i love them yeah but it totally means that you have to rationalize and reconcile and no prize your way out of a lot of things if you want you know <laughs> to do it sometimes i just choose to go i'm going to not acknowledge that i'm just like it doesn't matter yeah. Which isn't to excuse it. It's just like in IBX particularly. I'm just like, that is not something that's relevant to the character going forward. So I don't care. Yeah. Whereas with Jean, like you can't not care about Phoenix because it's relevant to the character's whole deal. Yeah. 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 So one last question that I think is a good one to end on. 
Rebecca writes, hi, Connor and Sarah. First of all, I wanted to say I love the podcast. I'm very excited to listen to the episode about my favorite X-Men character. I was wondering if you two might be able to discuss Gene's morality in a bit more detail. (laughs) I believe Connor has mentioned before that he views Gene as being somewhat self-righteous, but my reading of that attitude is a little different. It seems to be more of a front coming from someone who believes she should be a better person than she actually is. Jean has a lot to live up to in terms of the way other people view her, one of Xavier's best students, an object of affection for several characters, a mentor to others. And I think for that reason, she's often been reluctant to confront the darker parts of herself. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. Thank you, Connor, for putting out the podcast every week. I love the insights from you and from the great array of guests you bring to the show. Well, thank you, Rebecca. What are your thoughts on that, Sarah? We've talked a lot about Jean's complicated morality. I like that you say that it would be some character who believes that she has to be better, right, than what she is necessarily. Yeah, I like that point. I think that's true. That's 100% true. And then I think that something that is always key to remember with Jean is that her actions are always controlled by her compassion her empathy the fact that she feels what other people are feeling and she's in everybody's head like that is something that you can never it's like as as dark side as she gets all of that is her response to things that are terrible that she sees she's so protective of kids she's so protective of her teammates she goes out of her way again and again she puts herself on the line without question like she is a character who is defined in a lot of ways by her compassion And when you struggle with that, you know, with that overwhelming compassion, there is always a dark side. There is always Mm -hmm. this undercurrent of people do not appreciate me. People do not understand me. People don't even see me. Like, I'm just this, like, paragon to them, and it has nothing to do with who I actually am. So I think that that dichotomy with her is something that, of course, like, you know, we see it in Phoenix, and we see it with you know, Rachel, even we see it with all of these different storylines with her, but it's something that a lot of writers have struggled to accept, um, you know, is like the or they lean too heavily into it, where it's just like, yeah, sometimes she's evil, sometimes she's good. And it's like, once again, as we talk about the marriage of her and Phoenix, like it has to be something where we're looking at both of those sides of her um, for her to be a compelling character. Like there's a fine balance that you have to strike. And her morality, to me, I think that she's one of the X-Men with the most clearly defined morality, you know, of any of them, because she's like, this is how things are. Like, I'm going to try to to do the right thing every time she's very black and white in her thinking can be but like that's the thing it's it's always spurred by her seeing somebody in suffering that's why i always think about you know that issue with jubilee and Sabretooth because it's like she sees she doesn't really care that Sabretooth is in the mansion until she sees jubilee crying and she's just like i hate this you know well and it's also relevant the x-factor period we talked about where she is kind of dreadful is the period in which she does not have her telepathy. And she doesn't exercise compassion towards Madeline in the same way that she doesn't exercise compassion towards Emma and the way that she almost tries to cut Rachel completely out of her Mm -hmm. heart, you know, before Rachel makes her tearful plea. All of those things are where her compassion ends. And that's why, why always that I think that she's such a compelling character because we have to look at where her generosity and her kindness stops as much as we look at where it starts right the distinction for me i guess is i agree with the general point here rebecca but i don't think gene is aware that she's not the good person that she needs to be in the same way that you're implying 
My thing with Jean is, I think we all know someone or maybe multiple people like this in our real lives. Jean is someone who believes that she is extraordinarily generous and altruistic. But it's the question of altruism, right? Because I think she views herself as self-sacrificing and doing everything for everyone else and keeping everyone going and being this giving, benevolent person. But she expects praise for it. Part of why she does it is for the affirmation that she is a good person. It's not necessarily born from a true altruistic core, if that makes sense. Yeah. And what you're saying about how she feels unappreciated and stuff. Sometimes I think it is because it's like, I suffer so much for all of you and you don't appreciate me. But on some level, then it's like, well, then get off the cross, Jean. You know? Yeah, she's enabling it sometimes. Yeah, she likes, she likes being that long suffering, unappreciated, giving, selfless person. She likes that. Uh, I mean, I think, I think that that's how extent. she was like raised, right? Absolutely. Like, well, her parents are fucking person. horrible, which we didn't even get into. But they're dreadful. Yeah. They're absolutely dreadful. There's a lot of problems, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, she's like, as we've talked a lot, there's like so much self-denial that's like been the pinnacle of like what people expect of yeah. her. So I think for her, like there is genuine desire to do good. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying there's nothing there. I'm just saying I think she... It gets messy, though. ...luxuriates in being the long-suffering martyr to some extent. I think she really does. Sure. And for me, I just don't see that she has like a way out of it easily because it's what everybody else does to her too, right? Well, but that's part of what I loved about the Morrison story is that it was her going, you know what? I am God. Deal with it or don't. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know what? I've had enough. You're right. I am a heartless cosmic being sometimes. And if you can't hang, you can't hang. Right. Whenever Xavier is like, no, you just said Phoenix is the cosmic purifier. What you just did said you Phoenix mean by has that? come to disinfect the earth. What did you mean by that? And she's like, exactly <laughs> what I said, John. Like, what do you? Yeah, did I stutter? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite things in the Morrison run is when she reanimates Emma's shattered body and she's like, get up, Emma, my husband needs you. <laughs> because she's realized she's like my capacity for like dealing with Scott's shit is at a complete zero at this point so right his mistress better come back to life because I'm not I can't handle it anymore <laughs> like it's like you know what which is so fair come back yeah. and you deal with it because I've had it I'm ascending to godhood <laughs> and you can deal with my husband and his problems and I just think that's <laughs> fantastic which is part of why it feels weird to have them back together it just does yeah are there any gene things we haven't touched on that you'd really like to hit before we start to wrap up? Oh, geez. Um, not really. I think that that kind of encapsulates a lot of it. I wanted to say that I appreciate uh, when she gets older, her relationship with Xavier gets very interesting. And I don't think that it's been compounded in the way that it should be lately. Um, but there are, you know, once again, in the Morrison run, what does she say to him where she's just like, you know what that look works on scott doesn't Doesn't work work on on me me. like i love whenever she tells him that he can't tell her what to do like i think that that's really interesting and how xavier is so baffled by somebody saying that to him well because after dark phoenix he has nothing to teach her nothing yeah he has failed her utterly (laughs) yeah and then she kind of becomes like the uh, like the person who 
it's like she's in such a strange place. Like she's like the student who becomes a peer um, to Xavier and then almost a superior in some ways. And yeah, so I love their dynamic as it goes along. Like I think that there's obviously lots of problems in the Silver Age. Um, in honestly, the Dark Phoenix movie, I kind of liked it because even though it was bad, like there was at least an acknowledgement on his part that it was bad and that also he has those moments where like, you know, whenever she's like, oh, did you come to kill me? And he's just like, never. Oh, my God. Like, I will never do that to you. And like, that was what I liked. I actually quite liked the movie is not good overall, but I quite like Last Stand, actually. Oh, yeah. I think that the stuff with Gene and Xavier in that movie is really good. It is. Because they're a compelling matchup. Like, they are. Yeah, and the way that The Last Stand explicitly is like, Xavier is a bad guy and this is his fault. Yeah, and she knows and that. And she knows. Like, and she's Nobody by else him, knows that. <laughs> and she kills him. And I'm like, yeah. that's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of ripoffs that are sexist to some extent, the Dark Willow plot on Buffy which has all sorts of other problems that I'm sure we could get into. So many. From other perspectives, right? But just on the level of it being a very obvious Dark Phoenix riff to the point where Andrew says it in the episode. Right. I have always felt that the biggest cop-out of that storyline is that Willow doesn't actually kill Giles. It's so clearly where that story is supposed to go, and they just wouldn't do it. Right. She just tries to kill him and it doesn't work for some reason like he gets better and it's like that's (laughs) fucking stupid yeah and so the last stand felt almost like a corrective to that it's like we're gonna also adapt dark phoenix kind of haphazardly (laughs) but in this one she's gonna kill the shit out of xavier slash giles because he needs to go and because that's also her that's the ultimate thing that she can't come back from i mean they gave it to scott that's what's like the most annoying thing about avengers versus x-men is that scott does that and it's like right no it should be gene it should be gene (laughs) gene earned the right to kill kill that is like her whole i don't know it's annoying well thank you so much for being my guest this was a lot of fun yeah i tried to rustle up a real housewives tagline do you have one maybe no (laughs) It's fine. <laughs> and this is why I've ultimately killed this game is because I get really trapped on a train of thought that I can't escape from. So I kept trying to come up with a pun on fire and life incarnate. <laughs> and it just wasn't coming together. No. But Jean would be an excellent cast member on The Real Housewives because she would be <laughs> the character who's like the nice one who the audience identifies with. And then she would reveal like darker sides as the show went on. And those characters are always very very interesting on those shows in my opinion they are as opposed to like emma who would be like the villain but then you learn that she has hidden depth those are sort of the two trajectories (laughs) right of like a reality television personality almost always yeah well this was so much fun why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything you want to plug is yours. Great. Yeah. So you can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Century. That's pretty much the one that I'm the most uh, present on. And I constantly just tweet about Jean Grey. Um, when people unfollow me, I'm like, ah, it was the Jean Grey. It was Jean <laughs> yet again. Like, oh, She's a harsh mistress, I'm just... but I must do what I do. <laughs> 
Exactly. Um, like the Jean tweets really got to Listen, it's time. lucky that I have a podcast account now because if I talked about Madeline Fryer on Maine to the extent I do on the Three Broadcast <laughs> account, like I would have no professional context left. They'd be like, this person is insane. <laughs> Yeah, I'm starting to feel that way. So I do the uh, Bitches on Comics podcast with Essie Fleenor. We just talk about a bunch of queer stuff. So it might be something that's up your alley. And then uh, we interview, you know, various comic professionals. But sometimes we just answer listener questions. You know, it could it could go anyway. And uh, yeah, you can look at sarahcentry.com, which is probably for the best. I used to work at Sci-Fi, but my job just ended there as everybody's did pretty much. Yeah, what you gonna do? Um, everybody was wonderful there. I don't, you know, it's it's a gift that it was even allowed to thrive to begin mm-hmm. with. But uh, I would say too that I loved um, I I love working on fiction, and so a lot of like my horror fiction is coming up. Like I've actually kind of like tapped a little bit more into that lately. So the website probably the best place to check in on my work. Great. Well, you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes as well as transcripts of the episodes as I get them up and visual histories of the characters at CerebroCast.com, the official podcast landing page. You can email Cerebro with your questions, comments, and feedback at CerebroCast at gmail.com. I uh, try to get back to people, but I'm looking at the inbox right now and some of them have been there for a while. So apologies. (laughs) This is very much a free time thing I do. And I have been really busy at work the last couple months. But now it's about to be the holidays and my whole industry has shut down essentially now until January. So I'm around. Right. Thank you all so much for your support. This is... A real joy. It's a lot of work, but I enjoy it a lot. And it's been nice to have a hobby in 2020. (laughs) And the response has just been so flattering and humbling and delightful. So thank you all for your engagement and join us next week for a special Hanukkah episode of Cerebro, all about Eric Magnus Lenzer. Until then, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is... X-Men.